This is the Literary License Podcast, Classic Novel Episode. Dealing with classics you must read before you die, and finding new life in between the dusty covers. Exploring page to screen and everything in between with your co-hosts, Jesse Woods, Ricky Ray, Leandro Getzi, and Keith Chalgo, who ensure to bring the fun to an old stand. Hello, welcome to Literary License Podcast in our classic novel section of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine and The Time Machine from 1960. Before we get started, let's find out who's with us. First of all, we have some special guests. We have Bob Madison. Hello, Bob. How are you? Hello, Keith and everyone else. How are you? Oh, doing well. And we got Jim Nemeth. Hello, Jim. Hey, everybody. It's finally good to see uh, put faces to the voices I've been listening to for so long. Oh, God, that's good. Good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> and, so we have, and we have John Collado with us. Hello, John. Yeah, hello, everybody. Hi, nice John. to meet everybody. New faces for me, too. And we got Tom Diamond coming over from our Dark Shadows podcast. Hello, Tom. I just opened the crypt door. Hello, everybody. It's really nice to be here. And as uh, especially for this, we have all the time in the world. So, uh, so how about that? (laughs) What we do, don't we? Well, anyway, well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Keith and uh, Vicky. And it's great to be here. No problem. And we have a regular co host for our classic novels, Leandro, with us. Hello, Leandro. Hi, hi, everyone, and welcome to the new people in this group. <laughs> and, of course, we have Vicky Ray, which kind of comes with her own reputation. Hello, Vicky. Shut up. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Don't listen to this man. <laughs> and myself, Keith Shago. Before we get started, let's find out what everyone's been up to. And let's start with Bob. So what have you been up to? A uh, case of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> No, actually, I, uh, I, I, uh, my agent is actually peddling a novel right now, um, which I won't talk about. And that's my clock. I'm sorry about that. Uh, which, I, uh, which I won't talk about right now because I will jinx it because I, I honestly believe in things. Don't jinx it. Your, but uh, other than that, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Cool. What about yourself, Jim? What have you been up to? Uh, well, unlike a lot of you guys who like binge on TV and movies, uh, I've been catching up on some much desired reading that I really didn't get to do while I was reading the book. So I'm re- revisiting some classics I love, especially some writers like Agatha Christie. I'm tearing, I'm tearing through her mysteries. And, and aside from that, becoming a fairly good cook during all this downtime. And so that's what I'm up to. I think we also need to mention that um, going into the spirit of what we're doing in this podcast, um, Bob and Jim actually wrote a book that actually takes it further and it's a fantastic book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? Sure. Jim, you want to, or what would you like? Uh, I can start and I love whenever you want to jump in. Uh, the book is called, like we said, it came from and it just started from the fact that we read tons of reference books because we love film and such, but especially when a genre of film is based on source material, like a novel or story, we got frustrated from the fact that um, reference books would talk about the directors, the stars and everything, but never 
there's never been too much information on, say, the author of the source material or a little bit about the screenwriter and the challenges they faced in adapting the material. And so that's, that's sort of the unique perspective we brought to the book. And then, of course, we throw in our opinions, uh, evaluating book versus movie and tell what we think the book did better and, and what we think the movie did better. And that about sums it up. Cool. And also, uh, you know, it, it was, I'm happy to say it was Jim's baby to begin with. And um, we were talking about it as he was writing it. And he very graciously let me play. And it turned out, you know, we, we talk about horror, fantasy, and science fiction films. And the way it just played out is that very happily, Jim was, was more than enthused about the horror films. Uh, than the science fiction films. And I love the science fiction films. And we were sort of evenly split right down the middle on the fantasies. So uh, it all just fell into place very organically. I have to say that I did read it. We did write a review. And for our listeners who are subscribers, it will be part of our um, newsletter that will be going out in March and April to remind people, though it was in our um, our top um, recommendations for four months in our newsletter. So, Oh, wow. So, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I love, you know, because you, you mentioned Logan's Run, which I one of my favorite movies. Oh, God, yeah. The Apes you mentioned and some of the old classics <laughs> and even some that um, I actually turned on to that after I read or watched like John Carter. Oh. I was unfamiliar with that. And I actually watched, um, went and bought the Blu-ray and watched that afterwards. And then, oh, and really? Then did you like it? Very good. Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah, I was quite yeah. surprised. Um, I kind of the only thing I was gutted about is that I bought it on Blu-ray. I didn't realize it was actually on Disney Plus, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I really much enjoyed it, and I would I would recommend people to actually read the book because it did it did give me some of my favorites were in there. But you do mention a lot of things that are totally off the cuff, not like the norm, like what people tend to cover when they're doing that kind. And that's what I quite liked about it. Yeah, one of the things that we wanted to do. Um, is, yeah, yes, is- we should put out there. <laughs> The opinions typically, at least mine, don't uh, go against the majority. So I've, I've heard about that from a couple of reviews. But the, my whole intent was just to per- present different perspectives, not uh, make you think you have to agree with my opinion. Um, and of these films are, are, are covered to death. So like John Carter, we were, we were looking for things that aren't covered quite as frequently. You know, like when Jimmy did um, Something Wicked This Way Comes yeah. or you know, Willy Wonka's or the Logan's runs. I mean, you know, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of genre criticism, you know, the stuff about from the thirties, for example, it's just been done to death. Yes. It and you know, uh, you could sit me on a desert Island. And I couldn't come up with a damn thing, you know, pertinent or interesting at this point to say about you know, Dracula or Frankenstein, because it's all been said. So we made a conscious effort to, to look at things that are, that are under-examined and underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I've, I very much enjoyed it because I've just like, oh, and it's a plus because of the subject matter that you chose and the films that you chose. It is quite nice to read something about these films because said before what you said, mostly of it, you know, whether it's Dracula, Frankenstein, or the Universal Monsters, or so on and so forth, they get done to death. And I have to sit there and say that for you know, I mean, I can't. I read it on Kindle. I did go out and buy buy a. Um, um, the book version of it only because you did a very good job as far as the illustrations and the pictures and it's a really nice presented uh, presented book as well so really enjoyed it so thank you 
Thank you. And one last shout out to you, Keith. You were among, I think you were the very first to write a review for the book and it was very glowing and we really appreciate that. Oh, no, no. I mean, I felt it. I mean, it's it's, it's from the heart. I actually loved it. I actually was devouring it. And you know, I, I, I get a lot of books to read and review and, you know, I'm quite honest with it, but there's very few that I gobble up as fast as I did yours. And I, <laughs> I was like, yeah. And I was like, what? the only, the only um, drawback I had on it is like, is there going to be a sequel? <laughs> oh, God. Well, so th- we didn't know, we, there were lots of things we wanted to do that we didn't get to. Um, you know, I wanted to do the um, James Mason Jules Verne movies, and we were going to call that section oh, Jules yeah. and Jim. But, uh, oh, you, know, Lord. you know, we just <laughs> ran out of space. It, it, maybe, would Jim, would you like to do another? Um, yes, but I, I have reservations because I don't, I can't determine whether the first one was successful in terms of sales or that. So would anybody even want a second volume? You'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would always be happy to work with Bob again. Well, in that case, if we're going to get a second one, we'll make sure on our podcast we plug it as much as possible for you. Yep. So So now that brings us to John Collado. So what have you been up to since last time we saw you, which I think was a Christmas carol at Christmas time, wasn't it? I think so. Not too long ago, not too long ago, but nothing's changed. I mean, with the pandemic, I'm Still sitting here. I haven't gone anywhere except to the dentist for a root canal. So that's the extent of my life. I'm I'm kind of finishing up a, a couple tail end projects from last year, and uh, just looking forward to this uh, today's podcast. A root canal during a pandemic. That about sums it up for me too, buddy. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that's about it for me. And what about yourself, Tom? What have you been up to since we spoke to you? I think it was the soap yes. broadcast. Yep. Last week, in fact, this is the first time since I started with you guys. I've been on three podcasts in a row. And uh, so I've established a record, a dubious distinction anyway. And, um, well, uh, the good news uh, for those of you who've been listening, and uh, I had a mild case of COVID, and which I'm over, and I'm glad to report that I got a negative COVID test over the weekend last week. Uh, actually, it was the day or two days after I did the last podcast with you guys. And, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm very thankful about that. I'm getting the vaccinate. I'm getting the vaccine tomorrow. It's probably going to be Moderna. And, uh, I am, uh, doing my schoolwork, uh, when I'm going to my doctorate in business. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that's proceeding. And my other podcast, which I might as well, which I, which uh, hopefully Keith, I'll, I'll mention, uh, uh, and that of course is the other end of the real world spectrum with the American Society of Public Administration. I'm doing a uh, doing a podcast for them called Public Sector Works, uh, which is on Podbean, um, let's see, uh, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you can go to LinkedIn, um, a couple of other, we're working on expanding the base, Google plus, uh, God, uh, and a couple of other, a couple of other, uh, something player and, uh, the bottom line. And so we just did the second one 
And uh, I want to thank Keith, by the way, for his technical assistance uh, on that. Uh, it's, re- it's very much appreciated, uh, especially considering his very heavy schedule, which, of course, he's going to get into. Uh, but um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing all right, actually. I, I got a real kick. Of course, we'll talk about this later, but I got a, I, I got a kick out of reading the book, and I even thought of uh, – I haven't decided yet, but I thought of doing 18 credits in either English. I want to teach, and I thought about either doing 18 credits in English uh, lit uh, as a result of reading this book. Uh, political science is my other choice, and it all depends upon the market. Uh, but um, So I've been busy, and uh, thank you for asking. Well, if you're doing political science, you could do English literature as well, and just carry all carry all of H.G. Wells, which we'll probably get into later. Well, <laughs> hey, listen, if you can pay for it, I'll do both. <laughs> so, thank you. And what about yourself, Leandro? What have you been up to? Because um, we uh, saw you, so yeah, we, yeah, we saw you, you last working, month. Working, and then you weren't, right? Yeah, you were working last month. <laughs> then we went back yeah. in lockdown. So. <laughs> Yeah, because we have been like up, like in and out of lockdown. So I have I was working last time. Now I'm not because we have a lockdown till the 15. Uh, I have an, an allotment, so I have been working there, and I have like have to walk there and back. So basically, when it's not raining, I'm there. Oh, that's all. <laughs> There's nothing much than, apart from that. Keith, I just got a blur, by the way, that just crossed my desk. Christopher Plummer passed away. That's a shame. Well, they're all they're all dropping like flies, isn't it? Cicely Tyson. Uh, He had a long run. A long run. He had to be ninety five or something, right? Ninety one. Ninety one. On Broadway, something like eight times, and he was always wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And he's one of those actors who kept working all the way up probably to the end. He was actually my favorite. He was actually my favorite post Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes. I just thought he was magnificent. He was very good at that. We should have a talk about that. I love Sherlock. Jeremy Brett's my favorite uh, post Basil. Everybody is Basil. I loved him. He was was fantastic. uh, Jeremy Brett, but that's another. But that's another story. But anyway, I mean, I mean, I think Christopher Plummer was in an Oscar-nominated movie last year, wasn't he? The one that Kevin Spacey got kicked out of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> part, of the, part of the gay Me Too movement. But yeah, I mean, he was working right up. And I think, I mean, it, it's quite phenomenal. I mean, if you look at his career, because I think he's one of these people, I think he's always going to be known for the sound of music, but he's done so yes. much, much more. Oh, I know. He was I the, uh, he was the uh, general in Star Trek with the, with the patch over his eyes. Star Trek. Oh, yeah. the country. He played an awesome villain and he played an awesome good guy. He really covered both ends. Yeah. Yep. Well, he's one of those guys who was very lucky because he had all the, 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 um, uh, qualities and uh, uh, attra- attributes of a, of a character actor, but he was handsome like a leading man. Yes, he so was. So you could put him in sort of a traditional hero role, but then you could also make him very effective as a villain because he, he was a good-looking but capable and talented character man, I thought. Yes, yeah. I agree. God bless him. I do kind of worry about what Hollywood's going to do because all these great character actors are are going now. I think I think the last one we pretty much got is like Alan Arkin, isn't he? Yeah. And, then, and after he goes, and it's going to be like, oh great, we're going to be stuck with Brad Pitt as a character actor. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> 
In fact, wasn't it that conversation we had on when we interviewed uh, when when Jim Storm visited us on the Dark Shadows podcast, and he was talking about the fact that ca- that the character actor is a dying breed in Hollywood now, yeah. and they're using the name stars to do character roles, and it just doesn't gel. There, there should yeah. be a renaissance or a revival of that. Yeah, we we need that staple today of you know the Thelma Richards and Hermione Gingles. So bad. Hermione Batterly. I saw Hermione Batterly on the Love Boat recently, and I'm like, Ooh. you you guys may may have touched on this last week, but I uh, I was really touched by uh, Cloris Leitrim's passing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in everything. Yeah, a few a few of them passed uh, this past weekend. Uh, Cicely Tyson uh, passed. Um, I mean, she um, she finished the movie a week before she died. Yeah, so. yeah, she went right up to the end, and I think best mother Abigail to... ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I loved her as Mother Abigail. Uh, she'll always be the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman for me. That too. <laughs> that was a fantastic movie. I loved that movie. Yeah. So, Vic, what are you even up to? Well. It's Texas, so it's BMX season. So um, Asher's going to his first national next weekend in Tulsa, just in time for the Arctic cold snap to hit Oklahoma. And he got his his team got and um, had a nice feature article written about them in a national sporting magazine. So we were all proud about that. And we're just gonna see how we do. Um, he has fun, so that's all we're hoping for. But uh, I kept watching the stand. I'm like waiting for episode eight to come out. You did, um, did loving it. I mean, yeah. I think actually, I think Whoopi Goldberg looks too young for the role of Mother Abigail, but I love it. It's really the last few episodes have really gotten into it, and I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. And I I've been kind of obsessed with that Discovery of Witches on Netflix. Can't or no, I mean Amazon. I can't stop watching it. It's just fantastic. And uh, and I got into this Nazi zombie genre, like Red Snow and stuff. There's nothing more disturbing than a Nazi zombie. I mean, they're just. <laughs> They're just intimidating and scary looking. The two together because they're. they're I know. Well, they're just themselves. just already menacing as human beings, but then you make them zombies, and it's just like ten times worse. <laughs> at least they're at least they're well dressed. They are well dressed zombies. <laughs> they are. I have to admit. And I watched this movie. I, I don't, Keith. I don't think I ever heard of this one, but it was called Red Riding, nineteen eighty three. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm into that. I watch all that. It's that's highly vibrational stuff, but that was a really interesting story. I had never apparently, but it was just an interesting story. And I looked it up, and they kind of stuck to it. I guess this guy was really after, you know, and there was a cover up, and it was just interesting, you know, about how it was confusing at first, and all the you know the loose ends come together at the end of the movie. But it was an interesting story, needless to say. I like IFC. They and Shutter. They play a lot of independent films, so I'm really always plug in for them too. But other than that, not much. We're just chugging right along like we always are. And let's see for myself, I'm basically I've been watching a lot of um, Russian and Asian television series. Really? Um, on Netflix, which has been really good. Hello, Jim. And we, um, which one's called um, better than us about yeah, and- androids taking over. Oh, cool. Which is very, very good. So and then I'm watching yeah. this, um, Asian monster horror series called The Snowy Monsters, which include all the monster greats in, okay. in Tokyo. And it's a very good series. I mean, I think they've now been recommissioned for a second season. So that's what I've been fitting in between my work schedule. So that's, and besides that, that's pretty much it. 
Um, we've now um, vaccinated 11 million people in the UK. So yeah. We're doing quite well. Vaccinate, now, so. vaccinate, vaccinate. Yeah, that's pretty much, you know, if I'm not vaccinating, I'm on the wards. I'm not on the wards. Yeah. I'm doing my clinics. Um, yeah, I'm vaccinated all 11 million, have you? I hope not. Oh. Me personally, no. I vaccinate, I vaccinate, <laughs> at, the mo- at the moment, I'm vac- I vaccinate about um, 138 a day at the moment. That's my wow. record. Wow. Moment, wow. guess on that note that brings us to the time machine now the time machine is a science fiction novel by h.g wells was published in 1895 and written as a frame narrative the work is generally credited with the popularization of the concept of time travel by using a vehicle or a device to travel purposely and selectively forward or backward through time the term time machine coined by wells is now almost universally used to refer to sets of vehicle or device the time machine of course has been adapted into three feature films of the same name as well as two television versions and many comic book adaptions and it's also indirectly inspired by many more works of fiction and many media productions the important thing about the time machine is that most versions that you read now in book form are one of two versions there's the whole text which is a totally different manuscript from the Heinemann text and I'm going to assume that we probably all read the Hyman text, unless we have a um, the whole text. So that'll be interesting when we go into the discussion of the time machine. But before we go into the discussion of the time machine, what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the synopsis of the time machine, and we'll be right back. The synopsis for H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. A group of men, including the narrator, is listening to the time traveler discuss his theory that time is the fourth dimension. The Time Traveler produces a miniature time machine and makes it disappear into thin air. The next week, the guests return to find their host stumbling in, looking disheveled and tired. They sit down after dinner and the Time Traveler begins his story. The Time Traveler had finally finished his work on his time machine and it rocketed him into the future when the machine stops in the year 8,701 AD. He finds himself in the paradisical world of small humanoid creatures called Eloi. They are frail and peaceful and give him fruit to eat. He explores the area, but when he returns, he finds that his time machine is gone. He decides that it has been put inside the pedestal of a nearby statue. He tries to pry it open, but cannot. In the night, he begins to catch a glimpse of strange white ape-like creatures Eloi call murlocs. He decides that the murlocs live below ground, down the wells, and that doth the landscape. Meanwhile, he saves one of the Eli from drowning, and she befriends him. Her name is Weena. The time traveler finally works up enough courage to go down into the world of the Murlocs to try to retrieve his time machine. He finds that matches are all a good defense against the Murlocs, but ultimately they chase him out of the realm. Frightened by the Murlocs, he takes Weena to try to find a place to where they will be safe from the Murlocs' nocturnal hunting. He goes to what he calls the Palace of Green Porcelain, which turns out to be a museum. There he finds more matches, some camphor, and a lever he can use as a weapon. That night, retreating from the murlocs through a giant wood, he accidentally starts a fire. Many murlocs die in the fire, and the battle ensues, and Weena is killed. The exhausted time traveler returns to the pedestal to find that it has already been pried open. 
He strides in confidently, and just when the murlocs think that they have trapped him, he springs onto the machine and whizzes into the future. The time traveler makes several more stops. In a distant time, he stops on a beach where he is attacked by giant crabs. The bloated red sun sits motionless in the sky. He then travels 30 million years into the future. The air is very thin, and the only signs of life is a black blob with tentacles. He sees a planet eclipse the sun. He then returns exhausted to the present time. The next day, he leaves again, but never returns. Hello, welcome back to the Literary Legends Podcast. We're discussing The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. So, Jim, what are your thoughts of the novel of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine? Well, here's where I typically get into trouble. <laughs> because, <laughs> because my opinions are probably not going to be shared by anybody else, but heck, here they go. First, first I'll say that I acknowledge the book standing as a classic in the genre and its influence over science fiction and film, but it's a good story. It's competently told, but aside from that, I just don't see what the fuss is about. (laughs) (laughs) There really wasn't a whole lot of actors. There wasn't really a whole lot of like people to focus on in the book. That's for sure. Usually have a lot of characters and. Yeah, it's, it's, they well, even kill off Weena. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, that could have been a major, major thing. And we'll, we obviously we're going to be talking about the movie later on, but the, but, but sequ- the, sequ- the, the sequels and the books that have been written always deal with what happened with Weena and, um, you know, and the traveler. Uh, and uh, that was that was a knockout punch. So I I, I agree with you, uh, Jim, uh, in terms of that. But go ahead, go ahead. I digress. I'm sorry. Well, just just a few of the things that bother me is so, well Wells and as an author, Bob can probably speak to Wells better than I can. But this book definitely seems more plot driven than characters. I mean. Yeah. I mean, the characters yeah. don't even have names besides like right. a psychologist and a medical man. Mm-hmm. And, because, and so I don't really become attached to any of them. And later in the book, when Weena gets abduct, abducted, I I don't care. <laughs> to tell you the truth. I'm, Go I'm you, heartless. Jim. I'm heartless. It's tough to care for the character. You're our kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even the time traveler doesn't seem to care that much. I mean, there's some wailing of teeth, grinding of teeth, but that's about it. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, fuzzies, Mormon fuzzies in this. Plus, there's just a too little action for my taste. I mean, it's, it's fine to go exploring on long walks and such and thinking in your head, but it doesn't really do anything in my opinion. But my biggest disappointment were the Morlocks. I mean, I hadn't read the book for decades. And so when right. I came back to it, it's like the Morlocks don't really seem to be a threat at all in the book. No. At least to the time traveler. Yeah. All yeah. they do is grope, grope at them. <laughs> and that's the extent of the threat. So. Well, yeah. but never, never underestimate a good grope. I mean, yeah, this is true. <laughs> A properly placed group as well. <laughs> and 
there is one good aspect, and I'll get to that. But the one thing that really bothers me about the book is like a, a absurd coincidence. I mean, I, I can buy into what they call suspend disbelief for a while, especially with a science fiction novel. But what what does the time traveler stumble across? The one thing he needs more than anything matches i know i know i kind of matches. wondered about that these matches have to be like eight hundred thousand years old right yes. it's just like wtf are they gonna they actually work <laughs> you know yes. and they still work well it's funny maybe it's an interesting plot device because on dark shadows uh and this was in the beginning they, they have a room which has not been entered into in 18 years and the light bulb still works after 18 years. And, and I think that was, that was uh, quite a, uh, that's one of the many, many lovely bloopers of Dark Shadows. But, but there it is. I mean, it's the same kind of uh, continuity issue, I think, that you're talking about. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. but I think um, continuity er- errors in, you know, a television show and a book are kind of, I think a book is Different. almost, is, well, it's almost unforgivable in a book because, I mean, yeah. that, goes, yeah. that yeah. goes through re edits and edits. I mean, it takes a while before the book goes to publications. <laughs> this, is, this was a serial, was it not? Um, I believe it was a serial. I, I could, yes, it was, I believe. Yeah, 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 probably. Most most these Victorian novels were right. serials. As we found out in the last few of our, you know, mm-hmm. what we've been doing with this, a lot of them were serials, and they're all out of the Victorian industrial kind of mm-hmm. age. But but to give the book its one due for me, I think I think the ending is fantastic when he goes thirty million years into the future and he discovers that. And it's extinct, and the planet isn't very far behind it. I that was a great sequence. I could visualize it in my mind, and yeah. I'm just disappointed that the movie didn't pick up on that. I kind of wish they would have done that too, because we all know that our star will eventually, you know, supernova or whatever. And we, you always wonder, you know, at least they were, he was thinking about that, the science of an aging planet and solar system. So I thought that was rather interesting myself. And he was pretty much, he was pretty much right on time with that too. They say we have, we're halfway through that now. We've got another four billion years on our sun, but our earth will probably be destroyed within about a million years from now. Yeah. By the time the red giant gets, it it goes into a red giant and consumes us. Well, regarding that, regarding that, I think that the, uh, the 30 million years thing, uh, touches upon the, uh, science of, uh, or, or it's called eschatology. And eschatology is essentially the study of uh, what would happen uh, when everything ends, the end of the world. And um, there's, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of scholarly literature, I think, written about eschatology, and um, he happens to focus on it. And, and I agree. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing about the novel that you don't see in any of the other uh, adaptations. So I think that, I, I agree, I think that kind of makes it unique. And by the way, uh, Vicky, it was published in the New Review uh, from January to May of 1895. Yeah, I thought it was I'm in the ship of W.E. Henley, whoever he is. So That name comes my, up a lot. There's my trivia for you. Newspapers. You did Dickens as well? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Carol. What are your thoughts, John? Well, one thing that that stands out is um, the book makes a bit more sense 
than the movie did mm-hmm. uh, in regards to um, uh, the description of the Eloi. Okay, in the book, you know, they were little people. They were childish little people. You know, they're not adults like in the movie. And uh, and granted, uh, 802 million years, or I'm sorry, 802,000 years from now, um, you know, obviously language is going to change. Mm-hmm. And in the book, of course, he had difficulty in the beginning, even understanding what they were saying was gibberish to him. And uh, of course, in the, in the movie, you know, they were talking English right from the get go. So, you know, that's one thing that stands out. And um, the other thing, and, and I, I don't have a grasp on this yet, but you mentioned it in your description there, Keith. Um, what was the um, um, socialist viewpoint of H.G. Wells? I, I, you know, I, I'm an avid reader. It was reader. during the industrial times in Victorian England, well, for one. Yeah, when, when it came to, when it came to um, Victorian England, basically H.G. Wells was a socialist against the... I mean, at that time, we still were under a monarchy. Um, yeah. Queen Victoria was the okay. monarchy. And there's a lot of poor in, well, as you know, if you read Dickens, you know, Oliver Twist and all that. So there's right. a lot the, of poor. Extremes. And he was yep. part of the socialists. And there was a socialist movement coming through, which is actually the beginning of our health service here when Queen Victoria opened the hospital where I work called the Royal Free, which was the first free hospital in the UK, which would actually spawn off the health service um, about 50 years later after the war. World War II. So basically, most of the people, Dickens was also a socialist, but H.G. Wells is more of a moralized socialist where he was against capitalism and communism. And so what you will find in this book is that there's a lot of anti-capitalism and anti-communist ideals that he perpetrates. And he perpetrates this through a lot of his work anyway. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but I think in Time Machine, you know, yeah, the Murloc is capitalism, the Eloy is capitalism, and then he changes, then he halfway through the book, he changes his views, or, you know, or, you know. Well, you see, of, the theme, the theme kind runs of flirts through back it. and forth. Yeah, well, the theme of inequality and social class run through it quite a bit, though, because yeah. they, they said that back then in Victorian England, there was like, it was like the era of great anxiety about social class and economic realities between the two. Absolutely. The, the yeah. industry was making the money, mm-hmm. and the poor were like, you know. But but um, another thing with English novels that you find is that um, classism is was very relevant up until 1989. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. and there's still a bit of relevance to it today. I mean, the thing is, is that um, if you're born to a certain class system, then um, you're. Um, you know, for instance, a House of Lords, that's all about the class system. That's right. you're not voted into the House of Lords, you are born into the House of Lords. Well, so at least we still have that ele- you know, element today. So well, it's not was, as relevant as as it used to be, but it's it's still kind of there underneath. Right. Well, he was very concerned about uh industrial relations and uh, there were other novels at that time. Uh you had uh, well, you have theories, you have Ray Lancaster with social degeneration and uh then there was a novel uh by Lytton, uh I think it was called Drill the Power of the Coming Race from eighteen seventy one that deals with that. And Edward Bellamy's famous novel, Looking Backward. So you have you, you know, you have similar themes there. But but not only that um, one of the reasons, uh, and it, it said that the reason that there was, you know, that the Morlocks were underground because when 
Wells was a child, his family yeah. uh, spent most of the time in the dark basement kitchen right. when they weren't in the father's shop. And the mother would work as a housekeeper in a house with tunnels and then where those where the staff and servants lived in underground quarters. And uh, there's when Wells became a draper's apprentice uh, before he became a, no- a novelist, he had to work in the basement for hours on end. So there, there's there's this stuff which influences his uh, his background, and uh, he put a lot of that into the into the novel. So if you understand that where it's coming from, I think it gives you another perspective. So Wells is a Murloc. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Sounds like the last insurance company I used to work for. (laughs) They make you work in the basement. (laughs) I as well have been a basement. (laughs) I I always love the origins of words, by the way. And Eloy comes from Hebrew. Uh, Eloy, Eloy, Sababakani. Eloy comes from Elohim. Uh, or lesser gods, and it's also yep. names of God, which you're not supposed to pronounce. I should be wearing a, a, a yarmulke. I think does it. Christ was was meant saying that on the cross as well. And there you go. Yes, Eloi, Eloi, So Eloi is a shortened version of that. Yeah, yeah. But I, that's where I was like, when I know, I know this. Let me keep. Well, when we went to Catholic school, that's part of our problem. But um, I'm, I, I wasn't a Catholic, so I didn't have to go to any of those Catholic things. Well, I, nice I, Jewish boy. That's I, I had to, but <laughs> I didn't have to. That's why I remembered it because of scripture that we used to study the Bible. And what are what are your other thoughts, John? Oh. Um, <laughs> they were pretty much it, you know, as far as the difference in, in that. And, and the fact that, you know, of course, H.G. Wells didn't, uh, uh, he didn't care for any of the, the, the bad things in the world war and everything was, you know, focused on that. And uh, um, he seemed rather disappointed as he kind of went along, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the book seemed to be a little more, um, you know, true to the, uh, as you said before, the, uh, the, uh, the continuing uh, uh, better description than than the than the movie itself. He was smart though. He didn't come back at the end. Yeah, I but then I would have definitely left. I wouldn't have gone back to that time, but I would have found a nice place, preferably a time with hygiene and whatnot. But, well, obviously, um, obviously, <laughs> obviously, when he does go back, he's going to try to save Weena. I mean, he's going to try to avoid that if possible. But that's not really. They don't get involved in that. No, they know because she was killed in the novel. Well, she was too childlike. Novel, you can right. you can see that he kind of wanted to go there with a romance kind of line, but yeah. you really couldn't, you know. Because well, it was like, uh, it does kind of I know what you're child, thinking. I mean. It does kind of border on Michael Jackson territory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what about yourself, Bob? What are your thoughts? Um, fairly nuanced. Um. We're, we're we're coming to the time machine today in, in 2021 with um, fairly jaundiced and jaded eyes in regards to science fiction. So, I mean, we're looking at it and we're saying, well, it doesn't really have the action sequences or the the human connections that we're looking for. And and that's that's not, I think, you know, with one of these foundational texts for the genre that, that that that's what they were after um you know wells was using this as a vehicle to um preach socialism as opposed to write a thriller and i think most of his scientific romances um are only thrillers sort of incidentally and not purposefully 
Um, so I, 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 I think it's a mistake for us to look at, at speaking of time, I think it's a mistake for us to look at the time machine of 1895 with 2021 eyes. Um, so that's the first thing. But if I was going to, if I was going to make sort of a, a macro comment about it, and I have a lot of comments, uh, <laughs> but to make a macro comment about yes, it, yes, he does. Come to the right place. I, first <laughs> off, I, I was, I was, I had, I, I was, I was rather beglamored by the book when I was a teenager because I had read it first in in high school. But um, reading it now with uh, with the jaundiced eyes of, of quite an old man. Um, I'm shocked at how cold a book it is. It is it is a surprisingly cold book, yeah, and yeah. and it's definitely written by, you know, someone who is profoundly and philosophically a socialist. Because for him, everything, you know, the human interactions and the the course of history are all about hierarchies of power. But none of it is really about real human beings. So it's it's very much a philosophical novel because he's talking, he's making philosophical points, but like like many people at the time who are, you know, in the, the Fabians, for example, who were initially engaged in socialism, they lose the the human element and they forget that you know systems don't exist independently of people, but 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 people you know thrive and, and live outside of systems. So that's sort of my macro take. Um, so I was shocked at how cold it was. But you know, there are there are other things that I found that I that, that surprised me uh, more so reading it. You know, again years later, and I, I have to confess at this point, I've, I, I I adore the film version. You know, to no end. And and now I, I I when I think of the time machine, it's the George Powell film that I think of more than the novel. Mm-hmm. So I was shocked. You know, first off, you know at, at at how barren the the opening dinner party is, yeah. because I agree, 100%, 100%. I mean, these people mean nothing to you in the course of the novel, um, and there's no warmth or fellowship, and and that's surprising because you know if you look at Wells, that's the same time roughly as Conan Doyle, and Rudyard Kipling, mm-hmm. and Haggard, and all of these people had this gift, this act, this you know, this sort of gimlet gift for for talking about male companionship and here you are at a club and there's nothing, you know, I'm, I, I was, I was rather surprised by that. And also because this is largely a philosophical novel, the thing that really shocks me is how distant the protagonist is because the, the, the hero of the film of course is very deeply involved in what's going on. And here he's merely an observer. And, and, and a rather ill-informed observer, <laughs> um, you know, and, and he's looking at, at humanity, which is now four feet tall and blonde and simple minded. And, and he's viewing this as some sort of golden age. And you have to be a particular type of imbecile to think that this would be a golden age. Um, it, it, only a philosopher could actually come to this as opposed to a humanist. He so, admits that he's I was actually rather appalled by it when I read it. But he yeah, admits yeah. that he's wrong. In the novel, the there's a big there's a big expounding by the traveler uh, when it comes to you know I thought this was a utopia. This was my first thought, and boy was I wrong. And he makes a big simus, as they say, from my end of the woods, a big deal about it. 
so at least you got so at least you got to give him credit. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, I, I mean, you also got the, I mean, you know, the main character. I mean, basically, you know, if you're going to bring it into modern terms, I mean, basically, he was, you know, identifying with the free range food, wasn't he? Yeah. They were like the free range chickens <laughs> because the Murlocs ran the show, and this was the free range chickens. <laughs> I got to say though, I learned a new word from that novel: uh, I'm like, what the hell is that? Who the, you know, that's, those are fruit, people that love to eat fruit, fruit, uh, frugivores. And I'm like, well, at least I learned something. Yeah. I almost wondered if he's, he, he, it almost like, I don't know how much philosophy you guys had to read in college, but it's almost like he was seeing them through like Plato's allegory of the cave. Do you guys ever had to read that? It was just like, you know how no. they're just su- sitting no, there no, and they're no, just maybe. observing everything. Oh, yeah. That's the, what that's it kept really reminding really, me of. Yeah. I don't know why. Philosophy. <laughs> just one more thing, if I could just uh, jump in, in there. I'm, 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 I'm also amazed at what a bleak novel it is. Um, Not very I, inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think that that you know if you're going to the Georges, I think this is where George Powell was right and and George Wells was wrong. Um, th- this is not a book that I would give to a depressive. <laughs> this is not, not a pandemic anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is. Not, you know, it, it's. I, I read the ending. I'm like, you know, this actually makes Beneath the Planet of the Apes look like Christmas. <laughs> I'm just, it does. I just. I was just amazed at what a bleak worldview it was. And, and again, and I think that boils down to, if, you, if you've read Wells outside of the scientific romances, he can actually be very human and, and very approachable, like Mr. Bitling sees it through or things like that. But I think he has such an axe to grind philosophically that when he gets to a place where he can actually grind it, which is where he does it, which is what he does rather in his scientific romances that, that, um, you know, there's no human, there's no human connection at all. And as um, John was saying, you know, Wiener should mean something to us. And, and I had to read, yeah. I had to go back to that paragraph twice where I said, well, wait a minute, is she sort of lost in the fire or something? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of cut and dry, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. He got over it quick. Yeah. Well, it, it's a definite detraction. I agree with you. And and then again, that's the, those are two major things that you see in the, that are not in the book that are in the movie, which we're going to be talking about. And the fact that you have a relationship between Weena in the movie and you have a relationship with Philby. Now in the novel, Philby, all he is, he's just one of the crowd. Yeah. Uh, he just disagrees with him, says a few words and that's the, that's the end of that. Uh, and boy, very two dimensional. And I, and I love Alan Young's Philby. I really, really do. That's yeah. why I do that as part of my, my little voiceover shtick. Uh, but I, but I have to tell you that if, if, if I were introduced to that character, the way Wells did it in the, in, if, if, if he did it exactly in the movie, the way it was done in the book, I wouldn't have been turned on at all. I mean, there's no, and of course the relationship between David and George, which, there's nothing in the book, nothing. Uh, so I, so those are two major deviations right there that I don't think make the book what it's, uh, what it, what it should be. It's what I think it was what was done after the book that expounded it and made it the legend that it is today. But if we're just with the book itself, I don't know. 
I think it was not warm and fluffy because it was kind of a cautionary tale about the uh, social conditions of an industrial society in Victorian England. And I think that's where he was just jamming, you know, all well, of the things in because it was a class yeah. versus class book. And know? I do think H.G. Wells is writing about characters who are outside his own social setting as well. Yeah. Middle class are always considered to be stiff upper lip, not enough emotions. And they're always, you know, they're always once removed from everything around them. And that's how they're normally painted. And I mean, of course. Well, you Brits are a little different, you know. But I'm saying that H.E. Wells comes from lower classes, obviously. Well, you can tell because there is and yeah, and his characters are basically that he's writing about are the ones that he feels that, but he's not a part of that social structure. So he's written them like they're cold and there's not that friendship, it's not the camaraderie or something that he has. There's no friendship. So, there's no. So, uh, though I do wonder. No, but obviously he was wealthy enough, you know, to do what he wanted, which was his Apparently. inventing and everything. So he was kind of in that, that uh, oh, yeah. you know, monetary class. But I think he, I think he just, I think for some reason he thought himself separate from it or something. Cause yeah. I think, I think that's why there is a disconnect with his characters as far as the English characters before he goes mm-hmm. back in time. And then, and then, and then with, but there are also that whole English, there's also that whole English text and narrative about him where he's just, as you said before, he's just an observer. He's not getting thought, but he thinks he's better than everyone else as well, which kind of gives you that whole English colonialism that was going on (laughs) previously. You know, when when we had the empire, everything was great when we had the empire. I mean, some, I mean, England still kind of holds on that still has an empire, but well, that's a conversation for another day. But um, so there is that as well is that there, he's a superior of anything else and that therefore he knows more than everyone else. And even his, even his conversations with the Eloy and stuff like this is like, he thought he was better than them. And there's, so you do have, while you are reading the novel, you do have this thread going through the whole thing. Yeah. And because of that thread and because you got this character who thinks he's better than everyone else around him, even who is dinner guest, he thinks he's smarter than everyone else. Right. There is, that and unfortunately that does give you a bit of disconnect when you are reading the novel because you are kind of stuck in this guy's head while he's, you know, while he's being this kind of person. Well, he's of kind of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> but just say it. In short, yeah. In short, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's like, I'm better than you. And every and then when he goes through time, he's better than the Morlocks and he's better than the Eloys and he's He's better than his dinner guest, and he's smarter than his dinner guest, and we kind of well, he invent the time. You don't get that in the movie, by the way. And I know we're jumping ahead, but that's another thing that you see that you see in the book. He's a snob. He's a snob, and um, I'm 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 going to shut up though. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think you know, I think you know, you got to remember when you know, Europe or any other country is conquering another country, you know, and this time we got, you know, conquering time and meeting different people. The people that normally do the conquering do tend to think that they're better than the people that are conquering. <laughs> people that are introduced. I mean, so that is a, you know, a, a, you know, a common trope in this kind of setting. But I think that, I think that for me, that I think that's probably where the disconnect kind of comes. Where if I think if he was a person there, Let's say that he was going, you know, going to get involved in a society and build huts to make, you know, put clothing on them or whatever, you know, like a Greenpeace worker or something. Right. I probably would have kind Mm -hmm. of got a slightly different kind of narrative going on. But, you know, so. Well, if I can just to push back against that just a tiny bit, Mm 
Um, if so, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not certainly um, defending the character as he's written in the novel because he's rather an unpleasant guy. But I think he's an unpleasant guy simply because he's passive. Um, if if you are thrust into a, a people who are spineless enough to actually just wait to be harvested like cattle, have no written language, have no really no real understanding of of abstract concepts, yeah. um, versus you know cannibalistic sort of monkey like people, then you probably are better than them. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, I do agree. But he was in a perfect world then. He found yeah, himself. Yeah, have a lot of dinner guests, and you can build a time machine, and they can't. You're probably better than them too. Yeah. Well, they did say that uh, the Eloi are supposed to be descendants of the British elite, and it says, and through exploitation of the poor, have created living conditions so easy and idyllic that the species have actually regressed. And the descendants of the British working class have toiled underground for so long that they've lost their ability to see the daylight and have resorted to cannibalism. There you go, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so, Leandro, what are your thoughts of um, the time machine? Um, well, I really enjoyed it. Uh, also, that it's really cool that the book is like it's a short story. <laughs> this is after we've done Count of Monte Cristo and Unfathomable Death. He hasn't recovered from that one yet. <laughs> but I like it because uh, I finished to read the book today. I sat, sat down for two hours and I and I just well really like I think like five sections. Um, I was taking some notes about what you were saying. There was something really interesting. I think that maybe. This book can be a bit like simple because he's not going anywhere. We we have to think that he's not planning a trip to anywhere. If you when when he explained, he said that he will be staying in the same place, but let like kind of like time pass. That's why, like for example, it's different if you say, okay, let's go to Mars. And well, how is Mars? He I think is he was just to wanted to explore where where the machine was going to take him and then prove the other people and explain what he had done. Uh, that's why I think also he's not like really involved in in anything like deeply apart from come back to, to where he was. Um, you, someone of you, I think it was Jim, mentioned something about fire, and for me it was really interesting because fire was one of the things that took like in the old days um, a lot of time to conquer for society, and then they, if you have fire, you could do things. And the fact that he ha- he traveling time to a place where there's no fire. And people live there like kind of like numb. They they're walking around, eating fruits, not doing anything. But if he, they would have had fire, they would have been able to at night expel these. Um, I can't remember the name. More, but I don't know the name. More lights. More lights. I really like the idea that when he um, he was trying to understand who was like in charge of whom, and. And and when there was one point that I was reading, and so what he's trying to kind of like put like uh, the society like um, structure when there is like seems to be like pretty much known because you could okay you could see from the point of the people that live up they're having a, a cool time eating walking around but the other ones are like uh, underneath. Um, I like it when when he mentioned it three times that like 
the character was getting angry because people there were living like cattle, like kind of like being there eating and not knowing even when they were going to die. When I watched the movie, that was more clear because the, the actor was really angry. And then when they closed the door, it was really easy to see that they were going to be killed. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, when I read the book, I didn't like knew all of the things that you mentioned about the society at that time when Wells wrote the story. I think that knowing that could give you another view to the story, um, but I didn't have, I just read the book and uh, did it, it, never thought about that. I think that if we, knowing all that about the, the our history and that time, you could maybe do analogies about, I don't know, politics, society, people like working classes. So I think I really enjoyed reading it. It was really, to me, easy to read. There was one part at the beginning that was, I was, oh, oh my God, he was really, really technical in, in describing things or really like emotional that oh, come on, carry on. But no, then I really enjoyed it. I, I would recommend it to someone to, for example, to read down if you're traveling that you have like, you know, a bit of time to read because it's easy and it's like <laughs> every section has maybe, I don't know, five, six pages. So, yeah, I really like it. What about yourself, Tom? What are your thoughts? Okay, so um, getting back to, and of, course, and, you know, of course I had already interjected some of them, but getting back to that initial scene, and I think one of the, uh, you know, where they're all at the dinner table, and I think that that's one of the things, one of the things that also turned me off was this abstruse discussion in physics. And I'm always one for a good academic discussion, Fourth but uh, at, at, but when you're but but when you're trying to get into a book and you're trying to find something, I think with, at least with me, and when you're trying to f- <coughs> find something that you could, you know, that you could dig your that you could dig your teeth into, and I guess uh, physics is not one of my strong points. I'm sure there are you know, uh, I'm sure there are others who would be uh, fascinated by the. Uh, the fourth dimensionality discussion, but it was really kind of like wading through jello in motorcycle boots for me, uh, trying to try and, and, and for me, you know, just, just trying to get through that. And when he finally, I said, thank God, he's, thank God he's now in the machine and doing something, you know, whatever the heck it is, because you could really fall, you know, you could really fall asleep from that. I think to be really fair, uh, you know, I, I have not read the Holt uh, version that Keith uh, pointed pointed out to. I don't know how different that is. Uh, there was also a deleted chapter mm-hmm. uh, called, and it was published as The Gray Man by Fari Ackerman uh, from Famous Monsters of Filmland, the, oh, yeah. the immortal. Uh, and um, th- that goes into... Uh, him right after the travelers escape from the Morlocks uh, in that deleted chapter, he finds himself in a moorland with grasses and black bushes. And there are herbivores resembling kangaroos and he kills one with a rock and he realizes that they're, he's in the future. This is before his 30 million year jump. And he realizes that they're descendants of the humans, the Morlocks and the Eloi. And uh, when an arthropod approaches, he flees into the next day and finds that the creature is apparently eating the humanoid. He was taught, he was, he was kind of cudgeled into doing that chapter by Henley. 
because uh, he wanted the text lengthened. And he says to, um, and he says to H.G. Wells, well, oblige your editor, will you? Which gives me the, uh, which gives me the impression that maybe Wells had a little bit of that, I mean, you know, snobbish uh, interpersonal reaction. Uh, which maybe comes out in, which maybe comes out in the novel. Uh, but I, so I, I think you have to, I, I think you have to, you know, really, you know, really look at those. Uh, but I think once again, you know, I mentioned Weena being killed. I thought that was a mistake. Um, I agree that the future, that the, that the far future is a very, very interesting, uh, idea, but I think, I'm more impressed with what was done since then, uh, including the movies and all the other efforts to to elaborate and enlarge upon the um, you know upon uh, upon the the original thing. I mean, you you it's it's like a it's like a basic. Uh, you know, also, you know, the, the origins again of some of the words are interesting. Uh, Morlocks, they're saying, may have come from, uh, Moloch's, which, uh, is a uh, term that miners use to describe themselves. And, uh, I think it's also a, I think it's also a Scottish term, uh, for, uh, for, for rubbish. And, um, but it, you know, but, but once again, uh, and, and that also gives you, and that also gives you, uh, you know, but, but you have to fish, uh, you, you really have to, and then there's also a Moriaki community in Dalmatia, but you really have to fish for this kind of stuff. And you're not going to see it when you're reading the novel. Uh, you know, so it's, um, and, and it amazes me. There's a lot of, uh, academic literature that started surfacing in the nineties, about the novel and it's a whole cottage there was a whole cottage industry based on that there have been books written uh by scholars uh so that amazes me that really does uh so it's kind of like they're digging into the phds or digging into this to see what they can find that nobody has ever found before which is part of their which is part of their ethos that's the only way i can explain this but um it's dull what happened afterwards was much much better. That's my that's my two cents. What about yourself, Bix? Well, again, going back to what Tom was saying about how you know I'm not physics was never my subject either, but you know we're talking about snobs or or whatever when it comes to him, um, you know, projecting his mentality. I mean, when you think about it, uh, he's he's addressing a room full of social elites. I think there was an editor, a doctor, a journalist, and I, a psychologist. And all of these people, in effect, are the, they're the elitist people that can have effect change in society. So I was just kind of wondering, you know, I thought I was kind of hoping that Elmore would have come out of that. And uh, he's I mean, wasn't H.G. Wells already like uh, not so much the toast of the town by at this time, but he had he already was branded. He's I mean, he had a brand. Him. And so he could be a little stuck up, I guess, when it came to, you know, what he wanted to convey or get across in any of his, his literature that he wrote. 
And uh, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, he chose a, a room full of elites to address this to, because you do see like the, the basic themes all throughout the book is inequality and social class. But I guess you wouldn't know that if you didn't, you know, research it or you didn't have to have required reading in college and or, you know, high school with this book. And then he comes up to technology and progress. And, and I think that he was kind of disappointed, possibly, that, you know, he was trying to explain all the underlying scientific dogmatics about, you know, his little machine going and disappearing. Uh, but <clears throat> the problem being is he was, I think he was expecting something, you know, 800,000 years into the future. What, what are you expecting? You know, I would expect, you know, like the Jetsons in, in full regalia at this point, but it's really not. I mean, society is already, you know, or humanity as it were has already failed itself, you know, because of let's say corporate greed or governments or whatever have you, you know, it was, it's, it's in our nature to destroy ourselves anyway, for the most part throughout, you know, uh, millennia. So, I mean, I think that's what he was trying to represent here. And I, I think that, you know, as far as passively reading it, you're probably not going to catch that, but we like to pick things apart on this podcast. <laughs> so, and so, I mean, it was actually a good read, but I was hoping, I guess I, I'm spoiled now to, you know, the stuff I do read. I mean, I was expecting like, I mean, even Edgar Allan Poe was a little more exciting, you know? <laughs> When it comes to stuff, well, he's got blood and gore in his books. That's why I like Edgar Allan Poe. But um, it, it was really all based on the have and the have-nots. And, and let's face it, the Eloy became, you know, really passive. They they didn't want to learn. They didn't want to uh, do anything with themselves except frolic, you know, by the water and eat fruit. Some of you guys said they were eating fruit all the time. <laughs> so they didn't really have... A much of an existence. I mean, it doesn't seem like a whole lot for humanity to look forward, which is why I say it's probably a cautionary tale. Where are we going? You know, yeah, yeah I agree. there's hope, you know, to change things. You know, I would hope anyway, that, that that's where humanity would be going to a more, pro, you know, uh, technological, you know, I don't, I don't think that, you know, where there's greed, there's ever going to be a utopia. There's always going to be dystopian dysfunction it's just the way it is it's never going to change but i think he was addressing all those things but i mean they all they didn't really all come together in a nice neat little package and i believe it was was it jim or bob that said they liked the end of the story because it shows about you know how the the sun's going to supernova there is going to be Mm -hmm. an end to all of this you know which is kind of sad because but then again you know people don't i I don't personally care because i won't be around for any of that (laughs) so it's just best to make the better of the time you have you know that's what i got from it in my view of the time machine i think that basically i think it's because it's one of the first dealing with time travel and i'll meet and as you're mentioning edgar Allan poe edgar Allan poe wrote one of the first murder mysteries yeah. And I mean, kind of, there is that kind of unknown territory that you're kind of reading when, while you're reading. With the narrator as well, when you think about yeah. it. And I guess with this one, I mean, this is, you know, I guess it's the first time, the first time travel um, mm-hmm. with, with, an under, with an underlying, you know, belief system of the author. And I do think that, I think for the most part, I think that if we didn't have this, we wouldn't have the springboard that would lead to so many time travel things that we have yeah, today, true. whether it's Back to the Future or Terminator and 
you know, and all this stuff previous time tunnel from the sixties, you know, this is, you know, we got to give a nod to this short story. I love the time tunnel, but I do think, you know, but you know, I mean, what this does share with a lot of HG Wells and stuff is that even though he's in the era of industrial and, you know, kind of enlightenment of the modern way, he, I mean, he does have a negative view about where this is going to lead, man. And whether you've read, you know, the, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau or the Invisible Man, it's all about the evils of science and man yeah. and genetics oh and, and, and so on and so forth. And I mean, this is, this is kind of his template. You know, the good thing about the um, Time Machine, it's a short version of his template. But I mean, um, overall, I think, I mean, I think I understand what he's trying to say and understand what he's trying to do. And it is a cautionary tale. And I guess for for the time period that he wrote it for, for Victorian England at the moment, is like a cautionary tale for the people of that time to read it. So therefore, you know, as we stated before, here we are in 2021 now reading this and looking at it through 2021 eyes, not through well, Victorian eyes. And when this, I think, you know, I think by the time this came out, I think that it wasn't so much about the characters, it was more about the situation of man and where man's going to lead to. And so this is a cautionary tale. So that way I thought, I think what he was hoping for that after you read this book, that you would that man might wake up and look at each other and hope for a better future and that they have control of their future. Sounds like Star Trek. But but once again Star Trek has the uh, uh, the meritocracy element that the that the group totally totally lacks in uh, in that dinner thing because they're all uh to- you know they're all dealing from their respective vaunted professions right. and i have a question i think B- vicky brought up something interesting when she was talking about the different people in the group and what about the young man i mean what the hell is he there for basically i mean i got really just got the impression that that was actually to you know, talk about the perceived uh, stereotype of of ignorance through youth, and uh, which makes uh, the traveler look even more esteemed, uh, so to speak. That was nice. They threw in a journalist at the end, by the way. Yeah. Uh, kind of a nod to Keith, I think. Uh, but they threw in a journalist in the end. Well, it was about time, some, you know, because other than that, I mean, that to me is the is is taking it out of the academe and putting it into the real world the first you know in the in the in this dinner sequence but it was very but it was very lopsided uh in, in see general. i kind of i kind of wonder did he is ac wells the kind of person that starts writing his books and let the characters just lead him or does he plot them out and plan them because he plots them out I don't know if he plotted this one out though, because I mean, you know, I well, mean, if you look, I mean, if you look at the Eloys, I mean, there's three different versions of the Eloys by the time you get to the end of it. They start off as, you know, this, you know, this type of diet, you know, you know this that's type true. of society. And then all of a sudden, like, they change to like this capitalism form of society. And then by the end, they're just, you know, free range chickens. That's what they're by the end of it. <laughs> and um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's, it seems kind of weird, I mean, especially for a short novel to have such a, you know, a jump in the the view. I mean, I mean, and you also got to remember this this the you know protagonist in this story basically is in this in this land for what seven days. Maybe you got to remember Darwin's Origin of the Species came out. What was it like a couple decades before he wrote this book too? And he was a, and he believed in Darwinism. I mean, he yeah. followed Darwinism. Well, this is about the survival of the fittest. 
if you think of it. I mean, yeah. uh, the whole the whole thing, uh, so many years in the future, is uh, about the Morlocks uh, being the fittest in terms of controlling and using the uh, the subjugate race as a uh, cannibalism on the food chain. Uh, but uh, but but he also constitutes the Morlocks as being humanistic. But are they humanistic? Depending on who you, you know, maybe. I mean, this because uh, we're at the end of the day, we are going by the eyes and the mind of the narrator here, which yeah. he might be an unreliable narrator anyway. Right. And um, and the thing is, I mean, the way they're described, I mean, they sound like giant apes. I mean, yeah, in the, they do. you know, in the movie, I mean, when we get to the yeah. movie, it's it basically an extra from. Um, Seven faces of Dr. Lau. But, yes. um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, you know, so, so, I mean, so basically, they were saying that, that, you know, but this is, you know, or maybe it's a gal, you know, maybe it's, we're not meant to be, think that way, that maybe man who's at the top of the food chain at the moment ends up at the bottom of the food chain. And of course, through, you know, evolution, another species rises up and, um, and becomes the top of the food chain. You know, about the younger person at the... I, I haven't read the Holt version in 30 years, but doesn't doesn't he imply in the Holt version that one of the people at the dinner party is a later iteration of the time traveler? Am I that's remembering correctly? That's an interesting idea. Yeah. I okay. seem to recall, and I haven't read it in ages, yeah, but there, they, is there, there is somebody there who's looking at the time traveler, and I think he's bearded. And uh, every now and then he puts his hand to his face and he makes rather, you know, dramatic gestures with his eyebrows. And, and I think the implication is that it's it's the time traveler back, which is a paradox in and of itself. Um, so that's right. That's I think the younger person might have been some early iteration of that idea that that Wells was playing with. And, and then, oh. you know, you see it in the Holt version and it's, it's, it's very different. Oh, it's totally, <laughs> totally eradicated yeah. in the one that we read, we read yeah. because you, you get no impression of, of who this guy, uh, other than the young man. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And that, That's interesting. And I think the, I, I think the Morlocks are definitely supposed to be regarded as, human i mean they're different human but i mean both the eloy and oh, the yeah they, they evolved into yeah. you know they went underground and they you know they evolved it kind of does have that kind of planet of the apes kind of feel where man goes back into ape and then ape rule the world <laughs> so it has kind of that yeah. because they're because they're i mean they're, they're described kind of like an ape-like character and i don't know if i'm actually reading getting the text i'm getting that from the text or i'm getting that from the movie mm-hmm. right? carrying the movie into the text sort of thing so, I think it's in the book. It's just because they're very, very hairy, aren't they? They're supposed to be very, very hairy. And, well, it'd be cold yeah. underground, so they would evolve well, the, that way. In the second movie they made, the uh, the remake, you know, they they're, they weren't ape-like at all. You know, they, mm. they too much CGI in that. I mean, it just kind of killed it. A totally and different. The guy with a big the, vertebrae going down his yeah. back. <laughs> and then the, the second brain, movie. The brain. And then <laughs> the second movie. That, exactly. That's what Vicky's talking about. They have an intelligent leader of the Morlocks who's right. able to talk fluently to the traveler. Totally ruined it. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if you got Jeremy Irons, you got to use him. That's <laughs> 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 villain. Love it. So before we go. But, sorry. Carry on, Bob. I said Jeremy Iron should have played the time traveler. Yeah, that would have been, been a good one. Yeah, <laughs> if you read the novel, the time traveler is an older man 
Um, one of the sequels, well past middle age. One of the adaptations, by the way, has um, them going into a parallel universe somehow, where the Morlocks are intelligent, and oh, wow. uh, that's a yeah, that, that's a real turn, uh, you know. And the, only uh, one Morlock was intelligent for whatever. No, reason. no, there's a book. There's a there's a book. Oh, okay, version. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. and in that book version, they they. They somehow, through the time machine, wind up in a parallel universe where the Morlocks are intelligent. The oh, whole gotcha. race is intelligent, and they deal with that. I, I, I haven't read it, obviously, but I, th- but I thought that concept was fascinating. It would be very, very different from what you have in in in, in the book. The the Eloy are children, and the Morlocks are uh, the Morlocks are a combination of of. St- Street smart scavengers and crooks, but there's yeah. no, you know, but that, but that, but, but that's what you see. So this is such a big difference. I thought that was a very great, I thought that was a nice idea. Before we go to the film, I think we should pose one question. And that question is, because we are, we're left with an open-ended story, what do you think happened to the time traveler? What is your own theory of what happened to him? And I think we'll, he went back. In the book or in the movie? Yeah, but I mean, book. In, book. At, in the book. So what do you think happened to him? Do you think he died? Do you think that he, he was happy wherever he went? Did he go back to... To Children of the Corn, wherever they'll <laughs> Or So what we'll do is we'll start with Vicky. What do you think happened to him? I think he went back. You know, I... I back to where? Uh, or, well, to the future. <laughs> I, I mean, back to the future. Yeah, I think... I, I don't know. We just a time Maybe he meets Doc Brown. Well, I mean, when you think about it, if you if you've got a time machine, I mean, there's a lot of things I would have liked to have, have witnessed in history, for one, because that's just the way my brain works. I think that all this technology and progress right now is just getting us into a lot of trouble <laughs> lately. And uh, where did we go wrong, kind of thing? Now, I would think that he probably he seemed more of a futuristic kind of guy. He probably wanted to see how this came to be because something had to happen where. The Murlocs were in the under the ground, and you know, but this is England though too that we're talking about. What about the rest of the world? What happened everywhere else? You know, I mean, would he have to stay in England? Could he, you know, go to another I, continent? I, I, I but no, but the, the the thing I think the point here is like, well, as as well as how I understood this story, he's not traveling in space. He's traveling just in time. This, so is imagine true. That, this is true. Imagine you are sitting in, in your house and you move in your house 18,000 years in the future. So that I think that's what the lack of like adventure because he's not going that's anywhere. He's just... scary thought being in Texas. Yeah. And considering he landed on top of, on top of the Earth instead of somewhere in the middle of a cave somewhere, it's quite, that's honest, true. quite wonderful. That's true. <laughs> but that's what happened to him though. He got stuck in the... Well, that was that. That was the movie. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what about yourself, Tom? What do you think happened to the time traveler? I'd like to think that he that if it were if I were writing the thing, I'd like to think that after all this nonsense, he starts to think about missing Weena, and that he goes that he 
goes to a point. Right. Now, now the machine only talked about the year. I don't think they, they – no, no, they gave the date. They gave the date as well as the year. You know, you really don't yeah. know that. The date as well as the year, or just the year, wasn't it? Wait, the book. It was counting. I think it was counting days and more than that. So I'd like to think that he goes back to a point before she's killed, and then he tries to save her, and maybe he meets himself, uh, and the and the paradox ensues, and what's going on here? And that could be an issue. Can he change history? Can he change history? Can he save Weena? And then maybe we'll have the movie finally, uh, because that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting to. We don't have the we don't we don't have the um, the believe the liaison of the of the uh, of the reader to the uh, character. Uh, to, we don't we don't we can't sympathize with the book. Uh, with the book Traveler. We can't empathize with yeah. him. We can't and live with... him those flowers. Don't forget the flowers. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. that was just that. You well, know, it's the least he could back. do. I mean, he did save her life. He, 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 he. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's what I'd like to I'd li- I'd like to see if he goes back and changes history and um, you know and just undoes this nonsense and then then maybe brings her back and then maybe brings her back to uh uh, to his original time, maybe to have a little life together, you know. That's what, what, about, what about yourself, Leandro? What do you think happened to him? Um, I think that, um, considering that he came back and no one trusts on him, and just one person at the end, you know, go and see if he was still there. I think he just went for like another um, traveling time and see where he goes. Okay. And what about yourself, John? I, I kind of agree with Tom on that one. I would think, he'd, you know, even though he didn't show it that much, you know, I'd like to think that he went back to before the time that Weena died and tried to save her. But he did mention in, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that bringing her back, she didn't fit in at all. Uh, there was a book and I read it, but it was like, I'll bet you it was 40 years ago I read it. And it was uh, the Time Machine 2. I don't know if anybody read that. Um, no. What happened in that? I don't remember. I thought he they explained that what he did from the first book. I, I I don't remember. I don't recall it. I have the book. But I haven't read it in so long. But that's what I think. I, you know, I, I have like to think that he went in the future. So, though, you know, I would be interested myself in going back in time and like Vicky seeing so much history. Well, John, it's interesting. Alive. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I have it. That was actually written by George Powell. Yes. Uh, 1981, and uh, Weena's pregnant. Oh wow! Obviously, tried... went forward. <laughs> <laughs> so they try to return to his time, but they land in the Blitz, and they both die during a bombing raid. And the newborn son, the newborn son, is rescued by an American ambulance driver. Grows up <laughs> in the U.S. under the name Christopher Jones, and then he's sought out by the son of Philby. And Jones goes to England to collect his inheritance. And he finds out about uh, George's journals and the Time Machine's original plans. And then he builds his own machine with 1970s upgrades, seeks his parents in the future. <laughs> there, was, there were also plans for a third sequel, but it, it, and it was partly filmed. But that's, another, but that's another story. But that's what happened there. That was a good pickup, uh, John. 
What about yourself, Jim? What do you think happened to him? I like to think, uh, similar to many of the ideas posed, he goes back into the future to first save Weena, and then I don't know if I'm just referencing the movie or whether they were in the book, but he goes and listens to all those spinning rings to get all the history of what happened up to that point, and then uses that knowledge to help the Eloy evolve further intellectually and such than they ended up being. I'm kind of wondering how that museum survived 800,000 years. Nothing else. The green something. The green. We started with that. Oh, what was it? The green what? The green palace. The green palace of green porcelain. The porcelain palace. Okay. The green porcelain. Which is basically, if you go to the the history of National Museum, um, it's green tiles. So I think he fashioned it after that. The history. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's me. I know the coffee that I'm drinking is making me crazy. But when I was reading (laughs) that part. I was thinking that kind of like he was in his house and in the movie, he have a lot of books in his house. And then when he travels in time, you know, they discovered all those books are like destroyed. He got really angry. I don't know why I thought, well, maybe he's still, he's all around where he is. Different, uh, and if we think he's a scientific, so probably he have a lot of things in the house. I don't know. I have this, that thing, the idea came to my mind when I was reading that chapter. And what about yourself, Bob? Where do you think he ended up? Um, well, see, he never comes back. Hmm. So I think it's pretty clear that he dies, just to bring everybody down. The, uh, the, oh. <laughs> you remember in, in, in the fun. film. So he actually, he actually goes to rebuild civilization. And in the, the novel, he goes with a Kodak and, uh, what he's really interested in is is not helping the Eloy or even destroying the Morlock, but improving that he did this. Um, that was his motivator, um, which makes him again rather unsympathetic. Um, I I think the fact that he does not come back is an indication that there's nothing there to come back. He's probably dead. Otherwise, honor. No, that's what I thought. I thought basically what happened was because he, I mean, that's basically, he didn't take, he didn't know how to take care of his stuff. He he didn't take care of that time machine worth anything because he loses it as soon as he ends up there. I think what happened personally is I think he went to whatever time he ran off. Someone stole this time machine and he couldn't survive because he was so stuck up on himself because he thought he was better than everyone. (laughs) He he died. I I take care of him. But I, don't think, but, but I just I thought well he died and I, basically his time or his time machine broke and he just died at whatever time. His time machine was destroyed. Like in the second movie, it was destroyed. So how could he yeah. come back? He might not have what he needs to rebuild. Yeah, but, and I don't know about him going back to Wiener because for me, I don't. That wasn't a love interest for me. No, not he at all. A, no. You know, I mean, he. I mean, to be honest, he didn't get her. Le- he didn't get his leg over on her. I mean, he didn't even try to. Yeah. have his way with her and she would have because she was stupid <laughs> <laughs> you know, i mean you know she, she's like the generation of free love i mean all he had to do was show an interest and she'd be on him and there was any of that going on in this story <laughs> whatsoever so <laughs> but that's what i thought so 
that brings us to the Time Machine, also pro- promotionally known as H.G. Wells's The Time Machine. It's a 1960 American science fiction film in Metro Color from Metro Golden Mayor or MGM, produced and directed by George Pell, and stars Rod Taylor, Yvette Mimo? And Alan Young. The film was based on the 1895 novella of the same name by H.G. Wells and was influential in the development of science fiction. An inventor in Victorian England constructs a machine that enables him to travel into the distant future. Once there, he discovers that mankind's descendants have divided into two species, the passive childlike and vegetarian Eloy and the underground dwelling murlocs who feed on the Eloy. Dean Warren and Tim Baer received the Academy Award for Best Special Effects for its time-lapse photo- photographic effects, which show the world changing rapidly as the time traveler journeys into the future. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer and we'll be right back with our discussion of the time machine from 1960. Such stories as H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea have challenged mankind. So today, man is successfully probing deep into the mysteries of the universe. Can he penetrate the greatest mystery of all, time itself? magic of George Pal and the fabulous production know-how of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to catapult you through time into a world that is yet to be. Why is it that we usually ignore the fourth dimension? You, you see, we can move in the other three. As the doctor said, up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. Inventor Rod Taylor's breakthrough into the realm of the fourth dimension is defied by his friend Alan Young. If that machine can do what you say it can... Destroy it, George, before it destroys you. Every moment is a year, hurtling through the atomic wars of the future on an incredible excursion into the unknown. What are the people like? Ah, the shape of things to come. It's lovely Yvette Mimieu. And what happens when boy meets girl thousands of years hence? How do they wear their hair? Who? The women of your time. Up like that? Show me. Is this the human race of the future? Or is this the Morlocks, fiendish creatures who live in a weird underground world? And the Eloi, the tranquil sunshine people, who the Morlocks dominate and maintain like cattle, luring them below with the hypnotic wail of the sirens to feed upon them in cannibalistic horror. Welcome back to Literary Lessons Podcast, and we're discussing The Time Machine from 1960. So, John Collado, what are your thoughts of The Time Machine from 1960? Well, like uh, Bob mentioned, it, it is my favorite. I mean, it doesn't even compare to the book. Uh, I can watch that movie over and over again, and you can see that uh, the love interest is there, and you can see, you know, there's, he's more sympathetic. 
uh, total opposite of the book. And uh, yep. they cast the characters well, as far as the actors. Um, just overall, uh, an excellent book. And, of course, at the end, the three books he takes, what books were they? Uh, you know, it, it leaves it up to the audience. I mean, what, what three books did he take to solve the Eloy's problems, you know, yeah, yeah. and rebuild the world? Uh, it was just, you couldn't, George Powell couldn't have produced and directed that movie based solely on that book because nobody would watch it. No. You know, the movie was done, there was much more emotion in it. And um, uh, for its time, unfortunately, it was in color. Um, you know, it, um, it always holds to be my best, my favorite, uh, my favorite science fiction movie. Um, and you can say many things about it. I mean, there's so many offshoots and, and, uh, you know, uh, other books based on that and time travel, because everybody's writing books about time travel today. Uh, I've done covers for many covers for uh, this is true. An author, uh, Trace Hunter, uh, I've done a lot of books, covers for him. And, uh, his is more of an action adventure, you know, but, uh, you know, everybody's on the time, time machine bandwagon. So, you know, and I think it's an offshoot from this. You know, uh, but good movie. I, uh, I have to, you know, there's just many more things I'll probably jump in as other people say, but, uh, good movie. And what about yourself, Tom? What are your thoughts of the film? Well, yeah, the time machine is, is definitely up there for me as one of my favorite movies. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, once again, now, what, what Pal does, uh, he actually infused his own childhood into, into the movie because uh, there is a great documentary, which I definitely recommend. Uh, you guys may have seen it, um, called The Time Machine, The Journey Back. And it was done in 1992. You can rent it on Amazon Prime. And uh, it's narrated uh, over 32 years later uh, by Rod Taylor, and uh, Alan Young also, and with the seller in it, and uh, the, the this is it, it's especially it interesting. Familiar. Yeah, it's especially interesting because David Warner, uh, I believe that was his name, who was one of the writers, wrote a little mini sequel where Rod Taylor and Alan Young reprise their original roles yes. as David and George, and the plot concerns. The uh, uh, George uh, coming back to 1916, the day before Philby is supposed to take off uh, for the airport uh, with the with the Air Force, uh, uh, the I guess the RAF uh, on the on the flight, which will kill him, and uh, and George wants to convince him not to take that flight and to go with him. Uh, back to back to wherever he came from, and I think the acting between the two it it, it made me realize this is thirty two years later, but the chemistry had not changed, uh, and uh, you saw the warmth that the the two put into the, into the friendship that they had. They were true true friends in the in the movie. Uh, Philby was very concerned about what was going on. 
with George is really portrayed here as a, a lonely person that one can empathize with that's totally into his science and and Mrs. Watchett is also a little bit more developed uh in in, in that movie uh and um and of course Alan Young famous you know the, the the Scottish accent and Alan Young was English also by the way he was British and uh I think his real name was Angus Young uh, and uh, the uh, the famous destroy it, George before it destroys you. I mean, you know, I just like my God. I love. I, I just, I just, and the passion that he puts into it. Well, in the sequel, in the sequel, they've got the same kind of passion, and they have a debate about for some reason. Uh, Taylor can't tell him that he's going to be killed the next morning. He wants to convince. Uh, he wants to convince his friend to come with him. He's unable to do that because uh, uh, Philby exhibits what we actually call in the literature today public service motivation. He actually, he is so, he's got to fight for his country. And that, and that comes first. That comes ahead of his family. Uh, you know, even Mary and the baby, you know, that was from the original movie. But um that that is also chock full of interesting interesting facts uh about the movie the time machine uh as envisioned by george powell it, it glides because uh he used to love uh the sleigh rides as a kid and uh so it's lo- it looks like a sled and that was yeah. why he decided yeah. to, that's why he decided to build it that way um the well, there's fun stuff like the motor for the actual time machine uh, in the movie is really a barbecue spit motor. And uh, so it's like real fun, you know, real fun things like that. Of course, the lights are Christmas lights. Yeah. But uh, it, it also goes into what happened to the time machine prop. Uh, and MGM sold it in uh, 10 years later for $10,000 to somebody who uh, wound up selling it to a thrift shop. And it disappeared for a long time. And a fan found it accidentally in the thrift shop. And it was all decimated, decimated. sorry. Somebody had something to say. Um, So it was all decimated. And he put it back together. And he literally put it back together with some fans who really loved it. The The details of which go far beyond this podcast. But DC Fontana was one of the people that helped out. And I was surprised from Star Trek. She was a writer on Star Trek, and I was surprised that she actually contributed. It must have been a hobby of hers, because she contributed in the physical reconstruction of that time machine. And finally, when they did it, they gave a party, uh, a Halloween party. George (laughs) Powell. George Powell had never ridden the time machine. He came to that party, and and he posed in pictures of him actually being in that time machine. Uh, The movie was so well-developed in terms and the special effects. They won an Oscar. They won an Oscar for the special effects. They, they literally, it was almost like Harryhausen, you know, those things where you saw the flowers. Climation. Yeah. 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 Where you saw the flowers, that was somebody who painted and you saw it was a frame by frame and uh, Wa Chang, did a lot of that. Uh, did a lot of that stuff. He's interviewed in terms of the in terms of the technical aspects of, of what they of what they put into it. But I definitely suggest and and there's also if you can catch it on YouTube, uh, 40th anniversary 
of the time machine. Uh, I don't know whether it was creation or one of them. They had a, uh, uh, they had it shown in the Orpheum theater in Los Angeles. And um, for some reason, uh, uh, the, uh, the gal who played uh, Jerry Ryan, Jerry Ryan hosted it. Don't ask me why. Uh, but uh, they had Alan Young on there. They had uh, the guy who, uh, oh, by the way, Simon Wells, who did the second movie. Simon Wells, who directed the second movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, he's the great-grandson of H.G. Wells. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so they had him on there. And they had Forey Ackerman. Uh, and uh, great stories uh, told about that. They literally had no budget for MGM really act is amazing. I think it was $800,000. That's all they gave him. And Alan Young told the story that when he was made up as old Philby, um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, George Powell actually gave him spirit gum. And he said, keep this spirit gum in your mouth. And when the time comes for the takes to be the old man, you got to take the spirit gum out of your mouth and put it on your face. Uh, because they they wouldn't give him a makeup artist. Uh, that's how bad it was. Yeah, I read uh, that too. But they did film it in the MGM's British studio mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they they wouldn't they didn't want to just weren't biting here. I guess. Well, mm-hmm. well, it's often it's often said that the budget came in around eight hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. But in, in homage to the film, oh. I like to think it came in at. $802,701. Very good. Very good. Sorry. Well, it was it, cheap in the UK at the time. Which is, right. Oh, it earned six, uh, $1,610,000 in the States, $1,000,000 elsewhere, and it turned a profit of 245000 Oh, they made money out of that. They made some money out of that. Another thing is that um, about, I think at that point as well that um, America was getting a tax break for doing films here as well. No, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. But, one. It happened again, and it happened again in the seventies. That's why all the Star Wars films were filmed here. Yeah, we that, yeah we've break. come across that a couple times now, haven't we? And, and there was plenty of homage to H.G. Wells. The, the character George is H.G. Wells's middle name, Herbert George Wells. Yeah. And uh, also on the time machine itself, you can see the... Yeah, the, right, yeah and the little controls. Yeah, yeah the little placard, H.G. Uh, Wells. Yeah, I like that little touch. <clears throat> so all these all these little inside jokes. And the, and the real interesting uh, story is about when, uh, when uh, Weena is saved from drowning. And you hear a sound mm. effect. And if you listen very closely, that's the laugh of Woody Woodpecker. Yeah. So he had a thing for Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> I had that. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot he, about that. I Do you remember which sequence? That was the drowning sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I have yet to hear Woody Woodpecker. I've been, I've been training. I listen ear. very close. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's funny, though, because, you know, he had an affinity. Well, the, well, the real story there was that when he when uh, Pal was doing Destination Moon in the 50s and he needed a cartoon sequence and he went to Walt and he wanted it by a one of the cartoon characters at the time. And he went to Walt Disney and Walt Disney wanted too much money for Mickey. He went to Walter Lance, who agreed, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, use Woody. And that really helped that film out. And ever since then, he tried to use one of something from Woody in each of his films as a good luck charm. 
Boris Ackerman was telling that story at the 40th anniversary. And uh, in the time machine, that was the homage to Woody Woodpecker and Walter Lance. It's very interesting. I did come across that. And what are your thoughts, Jim, on the film? Well, what what an about face. Um, (laughs) Well, first, I have to confess that in preparing for the this podcast will be twice. Okay. Because because the first time I watched it, all I could do is keep my eyes on Rod Taylor, to be honest. He he just looked so good in it that I couldn't concentrate <laughs> on anything else. You should look but, in the sequel. He doesn't see he doesn't uh-huh. look too good in the sequel. <laughs> but upon the second viewing, I think the film is just like almost perfection. There's with one exception, and that's the ending. There's nothing I would change about it. And just the opening sequence with George and his house and his guests and the table. Mm-hmm. It, it's beautiful. I lived in the Victorian era. And particularly, I think the effects hold up well. I my, One of my favorite scenes is uh, George's first test. And you see the sun and the moon go th- across the skyline. Yeah, yeah. The aforementioned candle melts and the mannequin. And, yes. and, I, and I did watch that same show you mentioned, Tom, The Journey Back, mm-hmm. to learn that, remember, back in the 60s, special effects were hand hand done. That's right. And the uh, apple blossoming was painted frame by frame and took four to five hours just for maybe four or five minutes of screen time. Fantastic it's just, work. Just amazing. They really deserve that Oscar they got yeah. for it. The Especially for the mannequin also. scene. That was brilliant. I loved watching yeah. the mannequin change. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, in the it's very interesting that uh, Rod Taylor in the Journey Back is talking. It gives it shows you the drawing boards of, of some of the of some of the mannequins with the clothes on. And one thing, one of the drawing boards which had never been seen and was never used in the movie was the mannequin in futuristic garb when Philby's an old man, and that you don't see in the movie. And she's wearing a Jetson costume, literally. And you talked about the Jetsons, uh, Vicky. I think that's very interesting. She's wearing a. One of those things that you'd see Jane on the Jetsons wearing, right? The silver with the pads, and- with the show. That's right, with the pads. That's what she's. That's what this one has got. And they did that in the forties. I've got to watch it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, it is really incredible. It is really incredible to see little things like that. And they kept that out of the film, but that was still in the story. And they kept the storyboard for that. And he shows it during the journey back. Uh, and- so it's uh, it's really a fascinating. It's really a fascinating. Uh, Thing. It's 45 minutes. It's really fascinating. I wish it could have been longer because there's so much to, there's, there's so much richness. And one last fascinating aspect is, uh, again, in doing research and um, especially on the screenwriter, David Duncan, and this information I have to quote to my fellow writer, Tom Weaver. Um, for years, when I would watch the movie, I just <laughs> could never understand the change from the book where the um, Eloy, when the siren goes off, they just became like mindless sheep. (laughs) Never never understood that until I recently learned that when the time traveler goes back to 1966, 
that's when you start seeing that the air raid siren goes off and people are let down into bomb shelters. Yeah. Right, right. So mm-hmm. it, over a couple hundred thousand years of evolution, that's the Eloy would just automatically go to the more just upon the airing of the siren. I thought that was brilliant. Yes, I agree with you. So overall, perfect film. Wish only regret is the ending. Wish they had done the book sending. Perfect. Yeah. Something to the viewer, I guess. Yeah. What about yourself, Bob? What are your thoughts of the film? I love it unreservedly. Um, uh, I like it a great deal. Um, and I, I, I vividly remember the first time I saw it when I was a little kid and I, I was just entranced. Um, I, I think, I think that the, the movie is, is not only wonderful in and of itself, but it's even more interesting when it's contrasted to the novel. So, I, I mean, we were talking before about how cold a book it is. It's a very cold book. And, and it's a very, very warm film. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. that comes down to the two guiding intelligences behind each. And I, I, I think Wells's intellect was a very cold intellect. Yeah. And if you look at um, Pal's Oove, um, he's a very warm man. I mean, most of his films, the, circus, the Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, for example, is one of the sweetest films ever made. Um, um, thumb is adorable. His, uh, his puppetoons, just w- actually why he was friends with Walter Lance. He was a, yeah. a fellow animator, um, are just wonderful and warm and, and charming. And there's a charm to George Powell that is, that is glaringly absent in, in George Wells. Um, then also I, I, they have radically different worldviews. So, the time traveler in the in the novel is a theorist um and 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 not only a scientific theorist but specifically a political theorist i mean everything keeps on he's 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 figuring out throughout throughout the novel what horrible system would have made this happen um but the the time traveler in the film is a humanist he's a scientist and a humanist he's actually um the flowering of what you would expect you know, the ultimate sort of enlightenment man to be. Um, I think it's telling that in the novel, when he's in the museum, he carves his name in a totem pole or something like that, which is an, an act of cultural and scientific desecration that yes. would yeah. be yeah. so dramatically alien to the George in the film. Mm. And, you know, where in the novel, he goes back into the future to to get proof of, of what he has done in the film, he goes back to the future to emancipate the race and, right. and, and reconnect them to their former greatness. Actually, I'd wish George would come back to 2021 and help us do that now. But um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's such a dramatic change of, of worldview and, and thought, you know, one is, one is an extraordinarily passive and negative creature and the other, an extraordinarily active and positive creature. And I think that's one of the many reasons that it's Rod Taylor who, uh, you know, with Jimmy, I, I agree that Rod Taylor is magnificent in this picture, 
if it was James Mason, for example, and they had cast it older, like like the novel, right? It would have it would have lacked that fire and and the passion, because when I think of the movie, the the absolute key scene, I mean, the whole picture revolves around the scene where um, one of the Eloy takes him to the library, and he puts his hands in the books, and and they crumble into dust, and and well, George, yeah. yeah. Furious. He's absolutely furious. It's yes, it's it's the, it's the height of emotion in yeah. in the yeah. film, and he says countless generations of people have have suffered and striven and died. Mm. Why? So you can you know play the game. Good point. Um, yeah. And yeah. and and that is so antithetical to the time traveler of the novel, who thinks in some bizarre way that that. You know, the, the Eloy is some sort of golden age, aside from the unfortunate fact that they're being eaten. So um, I, 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 I'm just amazed. And then also very wisely, I think, the, the movie jettisons all of Wells' sort of moldy um, class uh, 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 explanations for how this happened. You know, because the, the idea that and it's not to be political, but the whole idea that, that capital is just sort of this lazy uh, uh, collection of people who have money, as opposed to intelligent and active people who have made money. Um, and that uh, uh, the working class are always uh, the victims of predatory behavior when actually, you know, capitalism, you could argue, brings people out of poverty, as opposed to puts them underground in the long run is just shows a a um a lack of intelligent thinking about the way human beings actually operate and the way they they work and and being a humanist i i think you know Powell said now nah, let's get rid of the political stuff because it doesn't really make any sense um and then my final thing is is i i think one of the reasons that the the movie is so haunting is that it ends with a question and and i think it's almost impossible to see that movie and not say, well, what three books would I take? And, and you know, Keith, I, you should ask everyone at the end of the show, you know, what are the three books that you would take? Um, because, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things that I think that, that makes it so resonant. So, yeah, it's resonant in ways that, that the novel is not, and sweet in ways that the novel's not, and smart and human in ways that the novel's not. So I love it. Nice touch with the clock, Bob. I was just going to say. <laughs> I like that. I, like, I love that. It reminds me of the beginning of the film. Yep. You I love all those clocks in synchrony. <laughs> you know, and then you got that music. You know, let's not forget the score, too. Boy, that score added so much to that. It was it was so well done, and uh, it was it was it was dramatic and orchestral and uh really helped to uh sanctify the emotion you know the emotions and uh the uh the scottish little tune of uh of philby it was so nice it was just it was just so nice you know to just show this you know i mean you could really see the love that philby and george had for each other the friendship of, of Philby and George, totally absent.
absent in the book. But here that is and 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 it was so and it was it was so powerful that the sequel in the journey back uh has joy as uh david coming back to try and get him and you could really identify with it you have to see the movie first but you can really identify uh with that um and uh it's uh i'm 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 just sorry that you know i oh um by the way in the journey back when rod taylor is narrating this whole thing he kind of looks up to the sky at one point and says, and I'm sure he kind of negotiated with them, but I think he really had a very warm relationship with George Powell too, because he looks up to the sky, George, you would have liked this. Oh, and he loved him. He loved him. Yeah. Yeah. You could see that. Or he is looking at this, looking at the sky and looking to the birds. Or whatever. Well, I don't know about those, but, uh, he, <laughs> but um, no, I really, I really think that, that they wished that they had done a, a movie sequel to that. They had talked about it. It never came about, but uh, it's, it's lost now. I think it would have been great mm. had they done a sequel with the, and the vet Mimi was only 17 at the time. Uh, that's another thing. So she was really the flower, although she was one of the most intelligent actresses in, in Hollywood from what I understand. She was really a very smart woman from what I understand, but uh, she was, able to epitomize and let's not forget her uh, portrayal uh, she was she was complete and utter innocence but a beautiful kind of innocence and that's what uh, uh, George uh, fell in love with uh, and you can you can identify with that too uh, somebody who had a very lonely scientific life and you know and never really expected to meet somebody and look what happened uh, and he goes back for her at the yeah. end of the film. He yeah. goes back for her. What about yourself, Andrew? What are your thoughts of the film? Um, I really enjoy the movie. I really like the uh, visual effects. Um, once I made um, a course how to write uh, scripts for movies, and they were talking about different ways how to you explain when time is uh, passing, and I really enjoy when when. Um, the character was sitting in the machine, and you could see the window and all the like the light passing. Then the the sound then was really clever. Uh, that and other other effects that I really like it. Like for example, when he comes back and he's in the uh, future and um, he's he's in the house, starts to break the house, goes outside, and I think they they have put like um, a train or um, underground at the corner of his house. So I really, really like. Also, it was really clever because if you see there, like it's like kind of one set, and everything is uh, is going on in that that the same place. And as Vicky mentioned, also when the he was looking through the window, he could see the mannequin changing the clothes. That was really clever, a clever way to show like time is passing. Um, I think it was also a really good, clever movement that they did that they included. He fall in love with um, this girl, Evina, and, and then in the book doesn't happen because I think it's like, as my understanding is like more they were more like child childish, and this one it was like childish but kind of awakening in one moment. For example, I don't know if you remember when she asked him to ask how girl tied the hair in in, in his time, and she turned around, and that I think I found it like kind of like really sexual movement let's say or sexy 
for what it is the movie that there's nothing, there's no love, there's nothing. It's just uh, traveling time and that's all. So I, I really like, really like enjoy the movie. And yeah, I've, that's all. What I, what I would say, I, I really enjoyed what, what all of you uh, added because there were like a lot of things that I didn't know. Uh, like for example, there were like another two movies or more sagas, and apparently I, I googled it and Cher tried to get the machine so she can go back in time. It was a joke. If you don't get it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what about yourself, Bix? <laughs> well. Uh... <laughs> I don't know if I can tell that, uh, <laughs> I think we I think we need a collective sigh there. <laughs> One, two, three, sigh. <laughs> we still love you, Leandro. Um uh, I guess I have to agree with what all the other gentlemen have specified about the movie this far. I guess they called um I guess we didn't really have a whole lot of CGI back then, but the uh, stop motion, I guess that's what they call it. Yeah. Was it stop motion? Yeah, I think so. I thought that, God, how time consuming is that? That's a real dedicated person that, that put yeah. some of those, those, those uh, uh, scenes together. And like I said, I really enjoyed the mannequin the most because it was just fun watching her get dressed, you know, and, and the styles changed through time and, and how he was kind of laughing. You call that a dress, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, Vicky, yeah. Vicky, think about this one thing though. Okay. You, you watch the mannequin from what was it? Uh, 1899 to yeah. the second world war. Right. That mannequin did not change position in that no, window at and all. He, and he notes that he in notes all those that. years. David notes that. Yeah. That, uh-huh. that, I thought that was kind of interesting as well. I, I, apparently the, the, this was a family business and they kept the mannequin. That was a pristine mannequin through all the decades I had to note as well, because I, I mean, we had old department stores back home and I, you don't see many of them down here in the Dallas area anymore, but I remember those mannequins being in the store and, you know, I kind of kept fond memories of those mannequins, like an Emsol's department store was on, you know, Arsenal Street down in the square, which is still really kind of, you know, historic where me and Keith come from, that area. But I, I just thought that was kind of kind of fun watching it. And I was I almost kind of wished he'd gone back into time a little bit more. I was waiting for dinosaurs when I was a kid the first time I seen this movie. But I, I thought it was well done. I often wondered what it would have been like had they not used Rod Taylor. But, I mean, James Mason just does not come to mind at all. James Mason is far too serious and not suntanned near enough to take over that part for, that Rod Taylor did because he was a heartthrob. He definitely was. But uh, I, I really, I liked it. I thought yeah, the Morlocks were kind of funny. I, I liked their lights, their light-up eyes, you know, the battery <laughs> battery operated eyes yeah. but you know every time i looked at the eloy i kept thinking of children of the corn or something like that for children some of the damned or the, <laughs> the damned, you know, yeah the there's an element of blonde hair yeah and it was just driving me crazy because i could just not a get little those. taller than the kids That's well bad. those movies like they just kept going through my head more and more it's like oh god yeah. this is well, where they got that think, idea they, from they, they, well, they were both, I mean, both Children of the Dam and this were filmed at the same studio. So it is probably the Children of the Dam wigs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, but I'm wondering if he got that idea when they made that movie, you know, to, to what? put everyone in a blonde bob. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
But I, I wish they would have done that. Well, I guess they, well, I guess they did that. I liked the one scene, which made sense because like, however, you know, the volcanoes erupted because we destroyed the planet and the geologic, you know, time bombs were set off and he was encased in, you know, and, 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 in igneous rock after a while, if you were. Yep. So, yep. you know, that was kind of interesting how he had to wait, you know, for the erosion to happen, which I kind of liked that too. So, I, I mean, I liked it. I mean, I don't think I've seen, I, I only saw the new, the 2000, was it two version with the guy with yeah. the big brain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that was interesting. Jeremy Irons, but he played that part, right? That time was, after time was pretty time after time is one of my favorite movies i yeah. kept thinking about that as well what if jack the ripper you know or somebody diabolical yeah. Yeah. Get, got their hand on the time machine you know i mean all hell breaks loose as it is you know but i mean it that that was an interesting concept i loved that movie i think we sure. covered that movie as well did we not yeah we yeah about two months ago yeah, I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan as well, and they did one of the book sequels <laughs> to the Time Machine involved the Traveler and Sherlock Holmes and Watson meeting up. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I, I always think that those are, but that, that those are fun. But I mean, what really, what negative thing can you really say about that movie? I, oh, that's really that's hard to Keith could come up with something. Come up okay, go ahead, Keith. <laughs> Well, go go after him. Go ahead. I love I love the movie. I first of all, I'm a George Powell fan. I like George Powell. I have I, I love the Great Rupert. One of my favorite, my favorite, okay. one of my all time favorite movies is you know, if I get stuck somewhere and there, one of my movies will be Seven Faces of Doctor Lyle. I'm still waiting for a Blu-ray of that because that's one of my favorite movies, and 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 <clears throat> the Lost Continents and everything else that he's done. I love his work, and I do like the Time Machine, but there are some weird things in there that really kind of like. The, you know, basically the film was made in 1960. Yeah. So basically, you know, he zooms ahead to 1966 and all of a sudden it's like, you know, out comes, you know, George and his, um, you know, his Barbarella silver suit. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is only six years after this movie being True. made. I never where, thought of that. And, and he, I thought he borrowed it from my favorite Martian. Yeah. Yeah. So. But, you know, the thing is, I think that if he said it, I mean, and, you know, I guess... And I have to sit there and say that if you're sitting there watching this at 1960 and you're thinking this is what six, six years in the future is going to be when England, you know, the war is over with and stuff like this. And basically, you know, everyone's still on rationing, of course. But I thought to myself, if he, if he set that to like 1986 or 1996 or something like that, it would have been fine for me. But it's just, it's just kind of weird to see like 1966, six years after this film is being made. Maybe it was a message. Years, Six years in the future that, you know, basically we're going to be, you know, and the world's going to be destroyed. Maybe it was That's, a message. How, how close were we to the Cuban Missile Crisis at that, that point? Was two years. Two Bay years. That's true. Yeah, but I'm sorry, but that's America. That was in England. If you guys got bombed, that would have nothing to do with this. Well, England doesn't know what the hell America's <laughs> happening. England doesn't know what's happening in America. I mean, yeah. Hey, it all runs downhill, Keith. <laughs> uh, nah, we'll just wash our hands and go, yeah. We knew they blow themselves up one of these days. But no, but, but um, yeah. So it's it's just little. It's it's that kind. It's, it's I'm not saying it took me out of the film and ruined the film for me. I thought it was a bit odd. And I had to sit there and say that it does play the stereotype that all blondes are stupid. Because yes, <laughs> I, agree. <laughs> I agree. No, no, there's no doubt. They, uh, you know, they did that with. <clears throat> is it true? Blondes have more fun. I often than, wonder where did that where did that 
that come from? The it's, it's, it's almost like at some point within the million year or 100,000 years that it took them to travel, that Scandinavia at one point came and conquered England and basically gave, <laughs> gave birth to the Eloys. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I forgot over that Viking invasion of York, yeah. I guess. I mean, but, but I mean, but you know, I do like this film a lot, but, but watching it again, because it's kind of weird, because, you know, when you start watching films, you know, I, I tend to watch films for enjoyment, but then if we're covering it here, you start noticing weird things because it's like, because you're, we're doing, we're doing a show about it. And so you start like seeing things that I probably would have never noticed if we weren't doing the show. If I was just watching right. this for fun, I'd probably just let all this wash over me. But yeah, yeah but, you know, little things like that. But as far as technicality goes, as far as the acting and everything goes, mm-hmm. I think it's fantastically done. And it's a fun, I mean, this is always going to be one of those Sunday afternoon kind of movies. Yes. For me. I was just going to say, it's a good Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday matinee for the kids. But yeah. also there's enough in it for adults to think about. Uh, so it hits across the generations. And considering 1960, and of course, I'm, I'm getting America's my background, as it is yours, by the way. You came from there once. I came from uh, America, yeah. I'm yes, American. you certainly did. Uh, but we're dealing with the end of the Eisenhower era and the beginning of the Kennedy era. And uh, so Eisenhower's era of innocence has just ended. Uh, and you could think of the Eloy as uh, that kind of, you know, everybody was, uh, I like Ike and they can, you know, the, I like Ike and the, you know, in the very, and, and it was a, it was a very innocent, simple, simpler time to live in. Well, uh, also because- everyone expected rapid technological change. Sorry about that again. The, oh, uh, <laughs> to the show. Pop goes on. Pop comes with his own sound effects. <laughs> I mean, if you look at, you know, even even the most disposable sort of junk movies like um, uh, The Amazing Colossal Man, there's this, 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 it's an awful film. It's an awful film. It is awful, but I can't watching it when it's on. I don't know why. Right, but there's this, there's this wonderful scene where, where teenagers are talking and, and, you know, they're like, well, when you marry me, you know, what will our life be like in a few years? And they're saying, well, you know, we'll be in space. And and the the space race of the late 50s, going through the early 60s and through the 60s, I, I think it was common parlance for us to, to expect um, these rapid, rapid and very, very dramatic changes. So, I mean, you know, it is kind of silly that, you know, in six years, he's going to be wearing um, a Jetson suit. But, you know, remember in 1968, they thought by 2001, we would have airplane service to the moon. Yeah. And, and this, I, this, this idea of the future that we had actually until about the beginning of the 90s, um, when it died dramatically, um, was that we would have these dramatic changes. We have had dramatic changes. They've just been changes in different venues. So, so rather than exploration uh, uh, or, or extraplanetary travel, you know, most of our revolutions tragically have been social or uh, in terms of expanding um, technology that we already have rather than creating new technology. But the idea was that, that there would be new technology that would dramatically change the way the world worked. So, I mean, I, 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 I forgive it that fairly easily. 
I guess it's just because it's like six years from the mo- when the movie was made. Yeah. I think I think it, I think it was like ten or twenty years. You know, when was Barbarella they, made? Sixty-eight. Well, well Barbarella. Sixty-seven. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, if if if, if you know, if he landed in like he went to the future from Victoria, London, and landed in 1986 instead of 1966. You know. Yeah. That, yeah. I got. I mean, I guess, you know, because of this film, I think that's probably the reason why none of us are wearing silver jumpsuits because we realized that was definitely a fashion no for us in the future. So. Oh, a big, yeah, definitely a fashion risk. Yeah. Nope. Especially if you're a middle-aged man with that body, you should never wear it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Vicky, you made a reference to Back to the Future, and I, I thought that was very perceptive because in the, once again, in the uh, documentary, they actually showed when Back to the Future was first being <clears throat> uh, started, they had Michael Fox in the George Powell 1960s time machine. And he did a little mini infomercial. Uh, uh, Michael Fox is sitting in the 1960s, in the 1960 uh, prop, talking about, you know, this is the way things were. And then he switches right to the DeLorean. And this is yeah, the that's way funny are. though. It's a DeLorean from a sled kind of thing. Yeah, I wonder yeah. why they picked a DeLorean. I, I've often I, I've got to read find out what was because there was because co- there was cocaine in the doors. There was cocaine. It was the only stainless steel vehicle at the time, wasn't it? Maybe yeah, have something to do with it. I think. Yeah, yeah. and I, I didn't. I, I it probably has more to do with um, advertising and yeah. You know, product, I mean, it product, I think really I think it's. I think it was product placement because weren't they on sale at the moment when those were a lot of probably product didn't placement. Buy them. It was kind of a flop. The Delor- I've only seen one DeLorean in real life in my entire life on this planet. So yeah, it was I saw, one- the, I saw the Disney World. Is a, is 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 the Time Machine a better movie than Back to the Future? It's a good well, question. They got different. They're know, different. Yeah, yeah, they're different. One, but yet you're talking about generational separation too. Well, uh, yeah, but I also think like that it, it doesn't it doesn't suffer from that um, Spielberg. I mean, the, the original doesn't deal deal with the whole Spielberg suburban family thing that we have right. to deal with with every with every Spielberg film. Yeah. But yeah. here's where Back to the Future. Here's one issue where Back to the Future takes off in another direction from the Pal Time Machine, and that's with the idea that if you change history, things can work out for the better. Different timelines. Yeah. Exactly, the different timelines, but more even, even more than the different timelines in the first movie, before you even had the different timelines, that was the, the second movie uh, talks about different timelines. But in the first movie, uh, when Marty comes back and finds that because he changed history, his parents are living better lives, his family right. is living better lives, Biff is now relegated to uh, being the garage guy uh, or whatever, you know, the, you know, the, the, the servant basically, whereas before he was on top of he things. He deserved it. He was a total douche. Absolutely. <laughs> Although Thomas, the guy, Thomas, whatever his name was, was a brilliant actor. Yeah. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that so it, to that extent, uh, Back to the Future might have been, but that's the only. That's the only. I think they they're both excellent in its own right. You you really can't. I don't think you'd have oh, Back I, to the Future unless you had the Time Machine. You wouldn't have Terminator unless. Well, you had absolutely, the time absolutely. Yeah. That's what they. You know when, when I don't even. I don't even think you'd have Dark Shadows unless you know, without the Time Machine because they went. I mean, they kept flipping back and forth in the time and everything like that. That became one possibly of the although they have the mechanism of the Time Machine itself. You yeah. had Dark Shadows. You had the seances. And uh, that's the only difference. 
The uh, hard is they want to pay for a time machine because it was cheap. No, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think that would have given Dark Shadows a, a bent that it didn't deserve, actually. But, but I have to sit there and say that H.G. Wells, I mean, he did start off with the craze of the time machine because before that, there was no, there's no literature dealing with time travel, is there? Before H.G. Wells is a time machine? I'm not sure. There, I've read, be. yeah, there was, there's some <laughs> French short story involving a clock clock that goes back and forth in time, but nobody really knows about it. I can't yeah. even find a copy of it. It uh, should be it should be mentioned, so, by the way, that he did H.E. Wells did a short story back in 1888 called The Chronic Argonauts, and that is supposed to be the foundation for the Time Machine novel. Uh, but other than that, I agree. I, I think you know, he, was the, he was the first. And I do think the Time Machine, the movie, I mean, I don't I mean, before the 1960s time machine movie, was there another time machine, uh, time travel movie that I can well, think of? I mean, well, you had the, the, the journey, not journey to the center of the earth, but wasn't there another, um, oh God, it was, they went back into prehistoric time. What the heck was that? Um, well, one, oh, million beasts, man, one million beasts. Oh. Well, so, so there were movies that, that covered a broad swath of, right. of like things oh, to yeah. come, but they weren't about time travel specifically. This is yeah. really the first, the first movie too. Yeah. It's amazing. Mysterious Sorry. Island. I mean, like Mysterious Island, things like that. They, they went back to, you know, there were dinosaurs where they went, but it was an island that was never discovered. And right. it was still in the present time. Yeah. So it really had nothing to do with time travel. That's true. <laughs> and then we have those one with the midgets in Western time and they, and they have like dinosaurs. What was that called? Tiny? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that movie is. <laughs> there were little midgets on the horses, and then they're like dinosaurs running around, and they're oh, western in cowboy outfits. Oh, God. Hey, don't knock MGM. No, I think it was an MGM film. <laughs> well, there's a I'm not knocking them. They did the Dark time. Shadows movies. I can't but, knock them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as far as like the time machine, the film goes, I mean, it, I mean, it did start, and I'm sure that Spielberg would never have made Back to the Future. He probably grew up on this version of the time machine. Nope, right. this is it. Time Machine was the first. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, so I, you know, and I do think that James Cameron probably, you know, took a leaf out of that when he did Terminator because Terminator is about going back in time and going, you know, and everything else that sort of thing. And I think that a lot of the things that we hold great and dear let become modern science fiction is all due to the 1960s George Pell's version of Time Machine as far as film, film goes. Time Tunnel was a big expansion of the Time Machine, if you think of it, because Which one was it? the Time Tunnel, the Time Tunnel, the okay. the yeah, that was on for one season uh, in Irwin Allen, Irwin Allen, but that essentially took the PAL notion of a little portable thing, and it made a whole complex out of it uh, with all the bells and whistles, uh, and. Um, Brought, brought that concept into the into the near future because it was actually 1968 when the uh, the time tunnel took place only two years after the actual series. Uh, so if you think of it, so if you think of it that way, uh, but there's no doubt that a whole bunch the time travelers, which was a low budget cheapy thing in 1964, and had uh, and by the way, for the trivia nuts on Dark Shadows, had. Uh, uh, the guy who played Jason McGuire, Dennis Patrick, was in that sci-fi movie uh, of uh, of time. 
uh, of time travel. Uh, but after, but there were a whole bunch of movies in the sixties on time travel, and I think that came out of the success of the nineteen sixty Pal movie. Well, I think it. I think it was like a. Well, that movie, I think in particular, was a. What do you call it? A it was a pioneer film because we had so many other things that came after that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it did have it did have impact on the industry for sure. Yep. And one thing they did. Uh, uh, you want to mention other movies? Uh, Somewhere in time, they didn't have a machine to do that. I loved that movie. Oh my god, I love that movie. He traveled in the mind. That was so sad, but did he really travel in the mind? Because he was the thing that he focused on. I'm in this time. I'm in this time because he was focusing on that picture of Jane Seymour. Yeah, but at the end, well, that's in, somewhere he, in time. He saw a penny somewhere or something and said 1980. Yeah. So the penny, then that was yeah. it. Because yes, yes, yeah, that was. Oh a my god, movie. that movie's so sad. But he must have he must have gone back in time because at the end of it, he ends up in a photograph with. Yes. James yes. Anymore, yes. That's a pure psychic thing. No machinery involved there. Right. Just the idea of hypnotism. But that had to be based on, you know, if it wasn't it for must the have been to some version extent. too. You know? Sure, sure. Sure. Just so not age. That woman does not age. I don't know if you have seen it, but there is a movie about a hot tub. Yeah, hot tub machine, hot tub on time machine. Oh, God. <laughs> no. But it's, but it's about time. No, that was such a, I hated that movie. That was such a. Yeah, movie. but we have H.G. Wells, I think, for that as well. Frog's cheer time. Well, there, then, we, then we get, you know, was it Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures? Now that, yeah, there we go. And George again. Carlin, gotta love it. Yeah. Mm. So what I'm going to do, instead of like comparing the book to the novel, because I think we've done that already. So I think what we're going to do is I'm going to take Bob's suggestion. And if you could go anywhere in time, you have to take three books with you. What three books would they be? And because this is Bob's um, query, we're going to start with him first. Well, the first book I would take is Time Machine Repair for Fun and Profit. Uh, Right? (laughs) Time Machine for Dummies. Time Machine for Dummies. So if I was going into the future... Well, so, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, uh, I would bring a medical text, of course. Uh, I would bring something on elementary mechanics because I, I can't change a light bulb. Um, <laughs> if, if I wasn't a married man, I'd be sitting here in the dark right now. And, um, and I'd also be starving if I wasn't a married man. That too. <laughs> um, actually, uh, and um, book, uh, Shakespeare. Because because that would help me understand people better. But I, I wouldn't take any book because I wouldn't go into the future and I wouldn't go into the past. I'm 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 too timid an individual to uh to brave whatever is in the far future and and too comfortable to go into the distant past. So Don't um, hygiene. I, Hygiene's a biggie for me. Hygiene. Uh, so I <laughs> I keep talking Bob. But I would I would take a book on repair for my time machine on mechanics and, and medicine. Keep talking. One more minute and your clock will go off again. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> John, are you timing him? I am. That's it for me. Uh, yeah, sorry. all the time in the world. What about yourself, Jim? What three books would you time travel with? Oh, 
the first one would definitely have to be Dracula because <laughs> that, that is the book that set me down the path of not my reading, but my writing career and all that. And I just still love it. Uh, second, uh, I'll riff off of Bob. It would have to be some kind of like medical or first aid um, text. And third, I just just don't know. I reserve, the, I reserve the right to come back with a third. Okay, that's, that's the deal. And what about yourself, Tom? What three books would you be time traveling with? What a tough question. Um, it is. Probably wow. one of the toughest I've ever had to think about. Well, medical, I agree with, uh, I agree with Bob. Uh, hopefully put some nursing chapters in there as well, because doctors look at the disease. Nurses look at the person. That's another, that's another discussion, but I, but I like a combination medical, uh, doctor medical and nursing, uh, technique kind of text. Um, I never thought I'd say this, but the Bible, uh, I was because, thinking that one too. Yeah. Because I think that if, if, especially if you, if you don't know where you're going, but if people don't know that, you know, that they need, you know, I mean, Whatever, whatever conceptions you think of it in terms of the afterlife, in terms of is it an old man with a beard or is it just a force that guides you? I think that, you know, I think the people in the future, if they've gotten away from that, they need to know about that. Uh, and then they make their own decisions. Um, and you tell them, you know, man might have written the Bible, not God. You know, that's possible. Uh, but you let them make their own decisions. Okay, so the medical... And the third, the religion, the Bible, and the third one would be the annotated works of Sherlock Holmes uh, by Doyle. I'll take the Baron Gould annotation, although there have been others since then. Probably be, I'd have somebody else carry it because of its, because it's a big two volume work. I think Bob is smiling. He knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, I would, uh, I would definitely take that because I think people need to know about the development of uh, of genre fiction. Although Edgar Allan Poe, let's give him credit for Lupin and so forth, but uh, but as developed by Doyle, I would definitely take that as a third book. What about yourself, John? Well, three books is not enough. Not I if know. you're going to do that lots of stuff. I to narrow that. Oh, but you're cheating on the question. Right. No, 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 no. What I would do, what I would do is, that's I would why take... you take a Kindle instead. <laughs> that's I know. But where's the Wi-Fi? Where's yeah, the that's a brilliant. Charger? Hey, listen, but but there's no internet. You know, you know, maybe. Well, you, you know download it. all your that books you know on it. it. Right. You download, oh, that's true. but there's right. no plug, and it doesn't matter where you go because I got all these plugs for traveling, like for the EU and for Thailand. Your battery will go out for hours. Yeah. It would be simple, actually. Uh, you know, in today's uh, society, I just take the uh, prepper's guide to the survival in the future. That would cover everything. That would work. Yeah. And what about yourself, Dix? I'm, I'm going to go with John because I always go with a guy that can survive the apocalypse. <laughs> take take the, the survivalist guide. Yeah. Um, I would definitely take an English literature book, like one of those big, thick ones. Because I love to read. I don't know what I would do without books. I honestly, I feel, I would feel like Burgess Meredith yeah. in that, that one episode of the, the was it? Um, Twilight, Zone. Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone where he's yeah. got all of his books finally. And then he I breaks his glasses. It's I just like, ooh, that is like the suckiest thing. 
But I would probably take a history book and do, you know, and I would say it'd be a, a, a toss up between history and a do it yourself book because you're not, because basic survival skills, come on. And I would all, I'd probably take a Bible, not that I'm very religious. Right. Let's face it, as far as it's, it is one of the greatest books ever. You know, you can't, you can't replace the Bible. I don't care what you believe. So. And make sure you take an extra pair of glasses, whatever you do. An extra pair of glasses <laughs> wherever I go. Yes. I know that that was the suckiest ending out of any any of those. It was movies. a wonderful ending. It was a wonderful yeah, Burgess ending. Meredith was so good in that. So oh, he was. He was. I mean, myself, um, I would take A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving because it's my all-time favorite Oh, book. that's true. Yes, you would. Uh, so I have to take that. Um, and then I would take a Dale Carnegie's How to Win Over <laughs> People. <laughs> because because it worked it worked so well for Charles Manson, so I obviously that would work for me. Ah. And um, and then How to Cook Man. <laughs> or a great cookbook. So therefore, I'd be How to well Serve fed. Man. How to Serve Man. How to Serve Man. Yeah. So, how to Serve Man, which is How to Cook Human Cook. Book. So I think, Holocaust. I so know. that way, you know, if I find myself with Eli, I, I can join up with the Murlocs and teach them how to cook. The Murlocs would be very sides, grateful yeah. to you. They might erect a statue in your honor, Keith. They could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're giving them That's more a, recipes. Oh, Keith would well, love that. Yeah, yeah he likes to be adored. He could be up there with the horns on that uh, on the on the. You know, the building. Yes, Keith, your dream would finally be realized. I know. Well, it's realized every day at work when I walk in and I see my <laughs> patients and I make them bow down to me as I, before I see them. <laughs> so. I guess that brings us to the end of the Literary License Podcast, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells in the 1960 film. Our next classic novels will be Robinson Crusoe, the William Defoe, and the 1956 film, which actually won a um, couple Oscars. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to buy It Came From, and bring that up, Jim. <laughs> Move it up, Jim, so we can see what it came from. We can't, up, up higher. It came from the modern... Oh. Prometheus, is it came from the even I can't see. I can't see the, the bottom of that. It came from don't move. <laughs> Big sounds, Jim. Now, now he's now he's frozen. Something no, not was behind. This is all you need to know. It came it from the stories and novels behind the classic horror, fantasy, and science fiction films by Jim Nemeth. And and the over talkative Bob Madison. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what and what you'll do is you'll we'll have the links about where to find yeah. that book and where to buy that book in the show notes, and they will be on our website as well. Um, next and week we'll you. be covering Bewitched. I think um, we'll be going closing up on season one for Bewitched, and then of course our two for one. We're doing Mad Max, and we should have an interview with George Miller to discuss Mad Max and Mad Max Fury Road. And we are actually we may have the Tom Hardy interview available before that time. And of course, um, we will also be doing Dark Shadows for the end of the month. But and remember, our classic novels will be Robinson Crusoe. If you want any more information from the Literary License Podcast, please jo- join our website and our subscriber list for a newsletter, which is www.llpodcast.com. And of course, you can find us on all our social media sites. And so what I want to say is good night to Bob. Thank you, Bob. Oh, thank for you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Jim, for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. It was a blast. (laughs) Thank you, John, for joining us. Thank you, uh, Keith. I appreciate it. I always like being here. And thank you, Tom. We'll be seeing you at the end of the month. Thank you very much. It was really great to do my Alan Young impression. And uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I, I was just, it was it's, it's such a wonderful, such a wonderful movie. Uh, I just can't get over it. Thank you, Keith. No at all. And thank you, Vicky. And I will see you next week for Bewitched. Always. Leandra had to drop off because I think we had to head for work during our lockdown situation. So thank you, Leandro, wherever you may be. We love you, Leandro. <laughs> and we'll see you next week.
Touch for your sons and daughters. 